Welcome back, everyone, to MetaStation after our much shorter than the show hiatus. I'm Erin. I am an English professor in Mississippi. I'm Claire. I'm a writer in Portland, Oregon. And we are back with our very first podcast of our season one and season two reviews. Today, we're starting with just the pilot. It will surprise no one to hear that we have a lot to say about 42 <laughs> minutes of television that we've watched like 10 times collectively. It will also surprise no one to hear that we ended up going far beyond talking about just the pilot. Yeah. So I think before we get too deep into our season one and season two recaps, I think it's important to point out if you're listening to this for some reason who and you've never seen the show before. Or you're like, I'm just going to watch one episode at a time along with the podcast. That's really sweet and lovely. But we are not the right podcast for that. No, no, because we will and are going to continue talking about every single episode of the entire run. So it will be full of spoilers. And with the pilot in particular, we talked a lot about people's character arcs over the course of three seasons. So this is a recap of the pilot for people who have seen up through season three and want to kind of go back to the beginning. And that's for the rest of the season one and two recaps. That's how we're going to handle it. If you do care about spoilers, turn this off right now. You're going to hear about some people dying that you don't want to hear about. Exactly. And you can come back when you've watched it, the whole thing. All right. So let's get started. Yay. I think it makes the most sense to start with Clark. So we were talking as we were watching the episode I think of the pilot sort of in hindsight after having seen how much stronger and more kind of nuanced the show got as it went along. I remember it taking me a few episodes to really fall in love with the show. And in my mind, I think of the pilot as being full of some structural problems and some characters that aren't sort of super fully developed. Like it's a good pilot. It's not by any stretch the best episode of this show. But I was actually really surprised looking back at it, how fully formed Clark is already. Yeah, there are a handful of characters that are very fully realized and sort of already exactly who they're going to be in the pilot. And Clark is one of them, which I think, you know, that's significant, obviously. And then Jasper and Monty are both also already very much Jasper and Monty. Yeah. And then I think even Octavia. Octavia changes a lot, but I think the core Octavia-ness is kind of there. And, and I, I would say Bellamy, too. And then Abby and Kane. But Clark especially, which is really good for a show. I think this is maybe one of the like, so at some point somebody talked us into watching this show. And in your case, it was me. Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> and something in the first few episodes really, really hooked us. There was, a, there was something or other in there that kind of caught our imagination, but also made us really latch on to the characters really fast because I think it's true for both of us like the thing that really hooks us on a television show is like I'll only stick with a show and I will only let alone get like obsessed with it you know but I'll only stick with it if I have one or two characters that I really like just get attached to and buy into as fully fleshed individuals and get really invested in right away and and I think from the beginning Clark is really that character. I think so, too. I, I feel the exact same way. I think there's a lot of shows that I have wanted to get into and haven't been able to because I because either either intentionally or just because of sort of my personal taste, there's no one on the show that I like or I'm rooting for. And that doesn't mean that I need everything to be like sunshine and roses. I can handle dark content in my TV shows, but I have to have somebody that I'm invested in their journey. I think it took me about maybe five or six episodes 
to really, really get hooked. For me, it was really the the culling, but there were there were a lot of bright spots in between the pilot and the culling that kind of hooked me in more. That was where it sort of like grabbed me and I couldn't let go. But for me, from the pilot, what I instantly was grabbed by was that it felt like what they were setting up was a mother daughter hero story. And so, yeah. so Abby as the hero on the arc and Clark as the hero on the ground and the opposition that they're facing from <laughs> overbearing asshole men and, and all of the politics and all the complexity and the connection they have to each other. The fact that everything Abby is doing is for the kids, but through the lens of her care for Clark specifically, the, the immediate introduction of the backstory with Jake, which I had forgotten we got so early. I I think of episode three is the Jake episode. And so I think I didn't remember that because it's the reason Clark was arrested, that it's pushed to the forefront. I mean, seconds in when they go for the watch, when they're pulling her out of her prison cell, like Jake is, Jake is so present in this episode. And so, so yeah, so for me, when I, you know, watching it now after having seen this particular episode probably three or four times and having seen the whole show, I'm really captivated by the relationship between Clark and Abby and, and now looking with what we sort of know in hindsight about who her parents are at where you can see like the Abby and the Jake in Clark right away. Abby telling her like your instincts are going to tell you to take care of everybody else, you know, to be the leader. And that that is immediately what she does. But also that she's, which I had completely forgotten until we saw it again, scratching and clawing and kicking and screaming and fighting back against the guards who are trying to pull her out. The first thing that we see her do after we see her drawing is fighting. That's like the whole core of who Clark is, is there 30 seconds in. She's a fighter with a really aggressively strong sense of justice. She's not fighting the guards because she's a violent person. It's because it isn't fair that she thinks they're going to float her before it's her time. And also the fact that she holds on to grudges and resentment and feels things really strongly that we see in that first moment she has with Wells is she's all right there, you know? And I think that for how much she's the heart of this show, And for the fact that she's the character that you really need to key into, I think the other shortcomings of the pilot, of which, you know, there are a couple, don't take away from the fact that it immediately presents you with this incredibly compelling central character who is already three-dimensional and interestingly complicated in some ways that, like, even just this far in, I think, are unique for a CW show. I forget every time. It's so funny. Like the things that you forget about characters over three seasons were so, you know, think about Clark at the end of season three versus the pilot is in some ways so heartbreaking. But it struck me like, man, how do I always forget that her instant reaction to those guards coming in, as far as she knows, taking her to be executed a month early is to just be like, I'm going to just elbow you in the face and kick and claw and like turn your own shock lashing uh, baton on you and run away Because Clark is a fighter. She's like a stickler and she's a fighter. So the first thing she says is, no, I'm not 18 yet. Like, like these are the rules and you're not supposed to be doing this. And then the second thing is, well, fuck that. I'm just going to like punch you in the face and run and hope for the best. (laughs) That first scene is still so Clark. 
those core traits, I think, are still there. Like you said, her first instinct will always to be to kind of play within the rules. She's always going to be like, okay, well, like in this situation, what can we do within the framework that we have? Clark becomes someone who's willing to break the rules and, and do whatever it takes. But even in Polis, you know, she's like, okay, well, here we are. This is the grounder setup. Like, how do I protect my people within this, this framework? So, and, but then barring that, she can't like finagle away. Then she's, she's always going to be ready to throw down. And I think it's really interesting too, if you think about, I think it's We Are Grounders Part 1. She and Finn are kidnapped by Anya. And one of the sort of like biggest parts of that sequence for in terms of Clark's character, I think, it, you know, is the moment when she kills the grounder who's guarding her in order to free herself and to get to Finn. Because we'd seen her mercy kill Adam before. Right. But we'd never seen her really like kill like that. But I think you can see that Clark is already there in that first scene. That Clark who's sort of like, okay, you know, like I tried to play by your rules. You got me here. I did everything you told me to do on the premise that it was going to work out, but now it's not going to work out. So I'm going to do what it takes. The part of Clark that will eventually go along with Lex on the Tondisi bombing and pull the lever in Mount Weather. That, that part of Clark, that like, well, I got to do what I got to do. Clark is already there, which I think is really interesting. And then, yeah, the, the sort of like, has no fucking chill Clark. <laughs> right. <laughs> like negative chill Clark Griffin. Oh my God. Yeah. Going off of what you were just saying about sort of Clark's evolution just in the course of this season, I think what's really interesting, we're being introduced to a couple of characters who are chronic to a fault rule followers and a couple that are chronic rule breakers with a very sort of situational morality. And over the course of season of three seasons, the way that they all learn from and are shaped by each other so that none of them by now at the end of season three are who they were when they started is really interesting. Like in hindsight, looking at Kane and Bellamy are who who I remember actively disliking both of them in the pilot. Oh yeah. And then when I <laughs> when I went back and rewatched it over Christmas with my brother, um, and I would like cheer when they both came on screen and he was like, those fucking guys? And I'm like, you know what? just wait, just wait, just wait. Like I promise. <laughs> they get so good. I could not believe it. But but you know, looking at Pilot Bellamy the anarchist and Pilot Kane, who is so locked into following the Exodus charter that he doesn't even, even for a situation like someone he's personal friends with who only was doing what she did to save the chancellor and who's a doctor whose skills they need, even then he won't make an exception because the rules are who he is. And then you think about, you know, how far they've come that by season three, Bellamy is on the guard is like a member of, you know, the establishment and Kane is the rebel, like the way they've kind of, merged towards the middle and then in some ways almost kind of switch places is really interesting because it sets up so clearly they're driven by factors that are sort of impacted by the world that they're in that have sort of made them into these people who are like either fuck all the rules or follow the rules all the time um and then we see over the course of the show that for a lot of these people it's really situational Although I think like one thing that's interesting about or one thing that's consistent about Bellamy and Kane, I would say between season one and season three, is what perspective motivates their decision making. Because in both cases, for Kane in season one and also for Kane in season three, he tends to think about 
the well-being of the group that he's responsible for over individuals that he has feelings for. Yeah. Like, that's true. So season one, he says, like, I will do, you know, like, I will always choose no matter what to, I, I can't quote it. You probably can. <laughs> I certainly can. Um, <laughs> Go ahead. <laughs> um, I choose at every turn and at any cost to make sure that the human race stays alive. Ask me how many times I've seen that scene. <laughs> Actually, don't. You don't want to know. <laughs> I can always rely on you. Anytime we need a direct quote of Kane's uh, dialogue from... from- Season one. Claire, Will, I, I could probably do most of Bellamy's in a lot oh, of Oh, yeah. Movies. So, you know. Um, no judgment. No judgment. Anyway, so yeah. So like right there. So so Kane, you know, like he's he's sticking with the rules because he believes the rules are the things that are going to protect the human race. This group of people sort of abstractly that he feels responsible for. And he's willing to sacrifice his personal relationships with whomever, which in the pilot is the personal relationship that is most kind of like strongly established as being a personal relationship that he's damaging with that choice is the one he has with Callie. But clearly there's there's conflict between he and Abby. Um, and Bellamy, on the other side, Bellamy, I think is like, again, season one and season three, He's always motivated by protecting the people he loves. And we, obviously, we talked about this a lot in the previous podcast. We don't really buy the BS that the reason that he did, he followed Pike is because of Octavia. But he was thinking about Octavia and he was thinking about Gina, you know, and he was thinking about his people, right? He was thinking about the delinquents. So like for, for Bellamy, it's more personal. I think it tends to be more about like him thinking about particular people that he loves and that has kind of expanded and this is a big part of his season one arc that expands that kind of circle sort of expands to get bigger and bigger but in the pilot he chooses to break the rules because he thinks that's what's going to protect him and Octavia and that's all he cares about you know but and in season three he chooses to stick with Pike and stick with those rules because he thinks that's what's going to protect the particular people that he cares about. They flipped on the one hand, but from another perspective, the way that they make decisions remains the same. That's true. It turns out that what defines them as characters is not like rule follower, rule breaker. It's rather, they're both pretty fluid about rules. They're, They're sort of willing to follow them or not follow them, depending on whether it's going to enable them to achieve the ends that they want. Yeah, I think that's an interesting transition to talking about the way... The way everybody responds to arriving on the ground, I think you see people breaking into those groups, Clark and Wells, and then Finn to a certain degree are trying to hold on to some aspect of like, there's a right and a wrong way to do things. There are things that we need to do. They've brought a sense of structure with them. Um, and, And the vast majority of the group who are just so thrilled to be somewhere where there aren't any rules or no one's telling them what to do, that even basic things that are hard to argue with, like the fact that they need to find a way to get to food or that Wells is making the point that the people who live on the Ark have concrete skills that they need. And if the Ark never shows up, then like we have no farming and manufacturing really straightforward things like that are totally washed away by the fact that they've all been living in prison for however long years for some of them and this is the first time in their whole lives maybe that they've had the ability to do whatever the hell they want Um, and so watching the group immediately begin to fracture along those lines like the second those doors open 
is really interesting, partly because of the way it foreshadows the groups that are going to last the rest of the season. And partly, I think, in in a couple of cases, in contrast to sort of where we know that they end up. You know, there's always something so bittersweet to me now, having seen what we've seen in how innocent Jasper and Monty are in this episode. Yeah. You know, like there's something really heartbreaking about it because because they too, I would put on on my short list of characters who are instantly already completely fully formed. They evolve, like obviously over the course of the show, everybody evolves, but who they are and their relationship to each other and their personalities and the way that they interact with the rest of the group already feels like it's just right there, like right off the bat. Which I really, which I really love. One thing that the pilot does really, really well, which I think is one reason why it succeeded as a pilot, despite, you know, some like rough patches and some cliched or CWE moments. They're so like economical about the way that they establish characters. Like the opening scene with Clark tells us so much information about Clark and her relationship with Abby. You know, when she hits the ground, the way that she reacts versus the way that Jasper and Monty react versus the way that Bellamy reacts versus the way that Octavia reacts, you know? So they do a really, really nice job of kind of like establishing very quickly and very efficiently exactly who these characters are and how they relate to each other. And I think that's kind of what makes it work. The engine of the show, if the engine of the show is the characters, then that's already there. And you've kind of got them like clicking in that world. And I think even like Abby and Kane also fall under that Mm -hmm. uh, umbrella. And even Jaha. She can talk about it in a minute. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but um, but yeah, but it's like, you know, it's it's interesting to kind of like think about, say like, oh God, like Jasper and Monty, like instantly they were, they, they are who they are. Well, they don't really actually have that much screen time, you know? And like most of the screen time that they have is like some level of comedic support. And like Jasper wasn't supposed to live, right? Like he was supposed yeah. to die. So that I don't think... It, they weren't even intended, I don't think, probably at that point. They hadn't really thought about how to flush them out. But I think the little bits that we get of them as a kind of like, you know, like supporting background characters who are kind of whose role is kind of to be there to react to things and to say funny lines. But they aren't just sort of like interchangeably the the jokester dudes, right? Right, like, right. They have like a sort of established dynamic from the beginning, where like Jasper's kind of like the jokey jokey kind of guy and Monty's just sort of like got that dry wit already you know he's got that kind of like OPS that's poison sumac kind of like (laughs) Monty thing going on and I I mean that's probably really a testament to Chris Larkin and Devin Bostick and how good they are as performers that like within like that tiny little amount of time that they have on screen and like if you think about like what they had to work with in the script, which is not a huge amount, they were able to sort of establish between them a dynamic that was so believable as best friends. Oh, yeah. They were sort of instantly like, oh, yeah, Jasper and Monty, there they are. You know, yeah. like, yeah. obviously they've been best friends since they were five. Obviously they went to jail for like some stupid thing they did together. Like, it's immediately sort of legible and relatable. And I think it's a testament probably to both the economy of the filmmaking, the writing, and the acting. But I think like the actors really deserve a lot of credit. I think across the board, the actors deserve a ton of credit, obviously, for like making meat out of the parts that they were given. Well, I think one of the things that I've always loved about this show, and even in the moments where I've had some real issues with writing or story choices, is I don't think that there's ever been a single actor on this show who I would say was not pretty much note perfect 
the actors are always spot on. The casting director, the casting team for this show, I think is someone that maybe we don't give as much vocal credit to. But if you think about how many characters we've grown incredibly attached to over three seasons, who basically started out as kind of glorified extras, you know, like Miller and Harper and Monroe were basically like stand around and say a couple lines in the first season because they had a hundred young people that they had to cast. And a couple of them sometimes got lines apart from the mains, but a lot of them died. But all of those actors were basically like, you know, they're Vancouver, BC day players or people who just show up and like work for a few days at a time and probably a bunch of different TV sets. None of them were people who were like stars. And yet that they found so many of them who were solid enough to build three season character arcs for them that just get deeper and deeper, I think is a real testament to whoever has been casting this show has a really keen eye. And the thing about pilots that's really interesting, and I don't know with this one in particular, but in general, sometimes you shoot a pilot six months to a year before you pick up the rest of the show because you have to like shop it around for somebody to actually decide to air it. And so that's why you have weird things like Callie Cartwig just randomly disappearing and then some hand waving from the producers on Twitter that like, oh, she got floated, which the implications of that are a little creepy. (laughs) Um, Yeah, right. (laughs) Because Kane would have probably had to have been complicit and then they never speak of her again. So I think we're all meant to pretend like she never existed, which is a bummer because she was great. But because Kelly, who got cast on a different show, they picked up the pilot and she couldn't come along. So I think that if you think about the fact that these actors auditioned for this pilot and they made this pilot, where for many of them, what's on the page in this might have been all they ever saw. Yeah. All they might know of who their characters are. Because at the time, that might have been all the writers knew. Like they might not have had the entire first season sketched out. And so to think about the handful to me that are really, really fully formed, for me, it's like Jasper and Monty and Clark and Abby. Immediately, you understand exactly who they are. It says something really cool about the actors, but also I think is a reminder that what they become has its roots in the pilot. You know, the groundwork is, I think, better than we remember sometimes was laid really solidly for both the arc of this whole season and the other three seasons. And in a way that is largely not from the book. It's not that it's drawing so heavily on the source material. And that's why it's solid, because they kind of really just take the concept and then push it in a completely different direction with some major changes already. Yeah, like there's so many characters that don't exist in the book. Finn doesn't exist in the book. And in fact, Bellamy in the book, there's a lot of similarities between Finn and the show and Bellamy in the book, both in that they're the sort of like the automatic love interest and also just in sort of personality. You know, like Octavia is a 12 year old, all this like, there's a totally different thing in a lot of ways. Yeah. Yeah. So we have to talk about Finn. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, So this was so, so, okay, so... We try really hard on Metastation to be fair to all the characters, regardless of our personal feelings about them. But we might not manage to do that with Finn. (laughs) It is harder going back, having seen the whole show. I think, and this is why, to me, the fundamental weakness of the pilot, the place where the pilot is the least satisfying to me and the thread throughout season one that comes off of that is the moments where they really double down on it being a CW teen show. And to me, it's Clark and Finn right off the bat. A lot of their scenes in the pilot, I think, I mean, the pilot, in a lot of ways, it feels like the show that it will become. In a lot of ways, it doesn't. And I think a lot of the scenes, 
that feel the most like this is a definitely a CW show and the least like the show that it would become are like the nighttime scene with the glowing flowers where Finn brings Clark the water, which is just like parachuted in from a totally different CW show. Oh, yeah. That scene could be on any other show. Like you could swap out the character names and like have the flowers not glow from radiation. And it could be on any other show. It is like indistinguishable from any other sort of like teen, look at the cute couple moment. Right. And then also a lot of the stuff like the final scene where they're swinging across the river right up until Jasper gets the spear in the chest. But, you know, like a lot of things about that scene and especially the kind of like flirty, flirty Finn stuff. That's where it really feels like this feels like a different show. You know, like this doesn't fit with what else is going on. To me, I think what it is, I think this is the problem. I fully understand why those choices were made. I think that they made a show that they had faith would get a second season pickup. And if they got a second season pickup, they could take the training wheels off a little bit. I think that it was going in a direction where it was like they had to play it safe a little bit in the first season because the concept is really out there and it is very dark. It's like it's dark immediately. And it's dark in a way where there's moments where I feel like it plays on that CW teen show thing in a way that I like, like Jasper getting speared at the end. They have this like, really for me, it's it's all the, it's the musical montages, you know, it's like they're playing some pop song and they're swinging across the river. Like it's all very like, we're kids and we're free and like... And Octavia is the other character that probably... Yeah, I, and I think that's part of why it took me a really long time to come around to Octavia because like her defining moment in the pilot is that like emerging from the water slow-mo shaking out the wet hair that again could be from any fucking show. And she as a yeah. character is better than that, but we don't know that yet. So now it's just like, okay, so you're the party girl with the overprotective big brother... And again, she has moments where she's more interesting than that, but fewer in the pilot, yeah. I think, than anywhere else. It took me five or six episodes to really yeah. actively start liking. And now I love, well, I guess now, now, end of season three now, I'm like, again, she's the problem just in a different way. But but I but I really, I <laughs> yeah. really loved her in a lot of the stuff in season three. Like by the beginning of season three, I was fully ready to be Team Octavia. But in the pilot, I think she and Finn suffer the most from the kind of show they're trying to make it in those moments because I think they think for the network that picked up the pilot that they presented that that's the show that it has to be and I don't think that was ever the show that they wanted like I don't think that the aggressive sort of pushing right off the bat towards this soft focus you know musical montage Finn and Clark romance I think the show was always smarter than that and I think that you see it in those moments where like they take that And they give you that sense of comfort of like, oh, okay, I know what kind of show I'm watching. And then they spear Jasper. And that's shocking. Not just because it's a well done twist, but because it comes on the heels of that slightly cheese ball moment. And so the moments like that make me think like, the show's self-aware in some of those scenes about what it's trying to do. But I really think that the Clark and Finn romance, he's clearly presented as the one that Clark's going to have the strongest relationship and the most chemistry with. And that's almost immediately, I think, not true. It's already more interesting to me to watch her bicker with Bellamy. Yeah, yeah. You know? 
And the relationship that I was really invested in at the very beginning with Clark was Wells. Yeah. It was Clark and Wells where I felt like, oh, this is going to be where they're going to really dig into some very messy, complicated emotional territory because you understand why she hates him, but you also you, the audience, cannot hate him. Like, he's so pure and true and wonderful. I do know one person who hates Wells. What? (laughs) Who hates Wells? Nell hates Wells. What? I can't remember exactly why. She has, like, a deep objection to him letting her blame him rather than her mother. I could not articulate to you exactly her reasons for objecting to that. But she, like, never, ever forgave him for that. And she's the one person I've ever known but we, we should get her on as a like guest. We really should. Yeah, yeah. Like point counterpoint. Yeah, yeah. No, seriously. Like here's a point counterpoint no one ever thought they would get. Anti-Wells. <laughs> yeah, no, because I feel like particularly knowing like what we now know that we get in the third episode where the true complexity of the Jake situation plays out. The really beautiful thing about Wells as a character is that his choice to let Clark hate him over hating her mother tells us something interesting that I wish they had gone into more deeply about Wells' own relationship with his own parents. We never see Wells and Jaha together. We only see them talk about each other. And then there's the hallucination flashback that Jaha has. But to me, I think that Wells is really clearly presented to us as somebody who fundamentally assumes that everybody on the ground must have people that they care about still on the Ark. Like he uses that as his argument to get everyone to keep their bracelets on because he's like, the people that love you are up on the Ark thinking that you're dying. That's fundamentally a bad thing. Don't you want your family to come down here with you? And it's like, Wells is the only thing that humanizes Jaha because he clearly loves him so much. Like, I think he sees him pretty clear-sightedly. Like, I think there's a part of him that understands why people feel about his dad the way that they do. But I also feel like, I think it's one of the reasons why in the first half of the first season, I actually was much more sympathetic towards Jaha than to Kane. Like Jaha felt like the one who was strict, but also maybe fundamentally more of a good person. Because Kane's kind of comes off as a villain. You know, you're sort of led to believe that he might have been behind trying to bump off the Chancellor. Yeah, well, he's he's pitted directly against Abby. And Abby's stated motivation is, you know, to keep the kids alive, to keep Clark alive, and her faith in the fact that they're down there and they're doing well. And we as an audience know that she's right. You know, so we side with her because her motivations are more immediately sympathetic. And also because we have the advantage as the audience of knowing that she's right and he's wrong. He has a perfectly good point, but he looks like the bad guy. Oh, yeah, yeah. Because he doesn't have like as an appealing, he's got kind of this like coldness. And of course, he does make terrible mistakes that he has to atone for. But the interesting thing about Jaha, I think in the first season, we can keep an eye on this. By the way, we were talking about recurring segments we could have for the season one and two recaps. And one of them, the first one that I came up with was, why is Jaha the worst in this episode? Um, <laughs> <laughs> and what's great is it'll work in every, every episode. Every episode, every single episode of all of the seasons, you can have a segment called, why is Jaha the worst? And it's funny because like in in the first episode, you know, he's not really around. We get a recording of him telling the kids what's going to happen on the ground, which kind of right away tells us what we should know anyway, which is that as chancellor, he is ultimately responsible for deciding to go through with this, you know, and people say this to Wells, like, or I think Bellamy says it to Wells, right? Like your father sent you to the ground, you know, like they 
sent us down here. They did this to us. They didn't know we were going to survive. They sent us down here as like lab rats and you're still standing up for them. So, you know, like we get the kind of articulation. And again, we kind of don't buy it because we know that like Abby is up there and she cares about the kids. And Bellamy, of course, is kind of like the bad guy at this point. He's like stirring up the shit in order to save his own skin, but he's not wrong. So what we see is that like Jaha's like, your crimes have made you expendable. So we're going to send you to the ground. Yeah, 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 yeah. This yes. is we're going to give you. As a chancellor, that's his decision, right? He's the one who had to ultimately decide to send 100 kids to the ground, including his own son. But the only other thing that we see, actually see Jaha do in this episode, you know, he's like, we have the recording and then he's in surgery. And then at the very end, he walks in to pardon Abby. And the interesting thing about him pardoning Abby, I think like the reason why we like Jaha, I don't know about universally, but I was much more sort of like positively disposed towards Jaha for much of the first season than I was. Oh, me too. You know, towards Kane for much of the first season and and way more than I was in in subsequent seasons. And it wasn't until rewatches when I was sort of like, wait a minute, you know, you were terrible all along. But like one reason why I think we're all sort of prone to like Jaha more than he deserves is because by the end of the pilot, we are already primed to like Abby a lot. Abby is our hero on the arc. Clark is the hero on the ground. Abby is the hero on the arc. She's standing up for the kids. Kane is saying like, well, they're probably dying of radiation. And she's like, they're excited. You know, she's like using up resources she wasn't supposed to use to save somebody's life. And Jackson won't do it. And she takes the blame. She's getting set up as the hero left and right in the pilot. So we get to the end and we know, and she's going to get floated and we know it's wrong. We don't want this to happen. And then Jaha swoops in and saves her. So of course, like he's the one who saves the character that we like. So we're like, yay. But if you think yeah, about it. Yeah, it's like it, a cheerworthy moment. Cheerworthy yeah. moment. But, but. Like, think about it from another direction. Why does Jaha pardon her? Because she broke the rules to save his life. I mean, the thing that she's being floated for is using medical resources she wasn't supposed to use. And we know that Jaha has floated people for doing that. That's why Murphy's dad was floated. Because he took medicine for his kid that he wasn't supposed to take. So even that, like, sort of hero moment for Jaha is, like, it's actually kind of makes him the worst. Because he breaks the rules in the case where... His life was saved, where he wouldn't break those rules for someone else. And Kane gets this kind of like, I'll deal with you later, young man thing. And it's like, Kane was just following your rules. Right, exactly. And then he spends the rest of the first season. I mean, it'll be interesting to sort of watch it. But like the other thing about Jaha in the first season, the other reason I think that Jaha kind of gets an easier go of things in some ways, at least at first pass in the first season than he does later, is because most like Jaha spends most of the first season not deciding anything. It's a war between Kane and Abby. Kane and Abby are the two people who are making the cases. They're the two people who are arguing the opposite sides of the calling. Kane for, Abby against. Right, um, right. You know, they're the ones, like, Abby is arguing for giving the kids more time. Kane is arguing for we don't have time. So Kane and Abby are taking positions. And Jaha is in the middle. And at one point, you know, later on, his decision is not to make a decision. So he has the luxury of avoiding making hard choices, of avoiding being the bad guy or seemingly being the bad guy, which is in and of itself kind of the worst. <laughs> so, oh, yeah. yeah. Well, and it's, it's interesting because it does feel like right away, and again, this is one of the things that is sort of the heart of the arc half of the story in season one and, and even really into season two for the interval when Jaha is back at the camp. The way that the three of them interact with each other, it's like you have a prosecutor and a defense attorney in front of the judge. Like they're making their cases to Jaha. And so Jaha makes his decisions based on whichever one he thinks is more compelling, but it volleys back and forth enough that he's really complicit 
I don't think he's actively pitting them against each other, but he makes it really difficult for the two of them to sort of meet in the middle. And, you know, in season one, the handful of moments where we see Kane and Abby temporarily on the same side are because a bigger thing than whatever they're currently bickering about comes in the way. There's Kane realizing that Abby was right about the culling. There's Diana Sidney. There's bigger problems to attest to. So they sort of find themselves on the same side temporarily. But their sort of constant relationship in in the first season is that they're both fundamentally opposed to each other and making the case to Jaha why Jaha and the council should listen to them. Yeah. And who sort of is in the driver's seat kind of goes back and forth. But it really felt to me the first time I watched it, I remember thinking so clearly that it was setting it up that Kane was going to be the villain and that Kane basically trying to wipe out anybody who contested his power was going to sort of be his arc. You know, that he's trying to get rid of Abby. Then next, he's going to go after Jaha because he wants to be Chancellor. And it's interesting kind of how cleanly they're giving him a sort of Machiavellian villain arc in the pilot and how almost immediately it kind of goes off the rails. Yeah. You know? The way the arc politics plot plays out over the course of the first season, not just on the arc, but the way that it kind of keeps filtering down into the relationships among the delinquents is one of the things I think that is the harbinger of everything that's great about this show, like everything that makes it not a by the book CW teen drama is like that it's immediately from the minute they land on the ground, it's about class. Yeah. Well, like you were saying, there's a kind of like, you can see how the groups of kids split off and still according to who they were on the arc. So the way that they sort of react to this freedom is really shaped by the circumstances that they lived in on the arc. And they're kind of like their relationship to the power structure of the arc. So like, it makes sense that Clark and Wells would kind of be the two ones who are like, look, they told us what to do. They gave us a map. They told us to go to Mount Weather. That's where the supplies are. We're supposed to go do that. Because despite Clark's anger, Clark is angry at her mother. You know, like Clark isn't angry at the system at this point. She thinks that her mom made the wrong choice. Maybe Jaha made the wrong choice. That they should have let her father warn everyone and then, you know, not floated him for doing that. But she like still fundamentally thinks of the system as just, right? Like, right. You know, I think you see that reaction when like the guys come in, it's like, no, I'm not 18 yet. You know, you don't let me like, she immediately goes to like buy the book, right? Because she still kind of has the sense that like, we should still do what the system says because the system is okay, even if the individuals aren't. I think maybe Wells has a little bit of a different relationship with that. I think Wells, interestingly, there's like some hints that Wells has a more critical kind of relationship with ARC society, or at least he understands more thoroughly what exactly is wrong with it than Clark does. You know, like for Clark, I think it is still very personal. You know, like she's angry at Wells because her dad died. You know, like she's angry at the people she's angry at because she lost a person who's close to her because he tried to solve a problem they all had in a way they didn't like, right? But like she's not really, at this point, she's not really angry at the system. I think Wells, the way that he argues for the kids to keep their wristbands, like you said, is about family. He says, you know, you don't take it off, not because like we're told to leave it on, which I think Clark sort of says like, we're supposed to leave it on. You know, like she doesn't really think about it beyond that. She's like, this is our connection to the arc and she wants, still wants that connection. And Wells says, like, you want the people who love you to know that you're alive, you know? So he's thinking about it on a personal level. But if you think about, like, the reason that he let Clark think that he spilled the beans about Jake and the reason that he broke a rule to get arrested, to get sent down with her, you know, both of those 
decisions show a really, really deep kind of like emotional intelligence. And also I think kind of like a deep understanding of the ways that the system really works. You know what I mean? So like he understands how it works so that he can manipulate it, but he doesn't really understand or he's not yet at a point or maybe he would never be at a point where he can fully see how he's complicit in it or how one would stop being complicit in it. You know, so like, so he sees that like Clark knowing that it was her mother who made that decision is something that would be more damaging to her having lost her family than thinking it was him. And probably more damaging kind of overall than thinking it was him. If it's him, it's just like a friend let something slip to his dad. If it's her mom, for one thing, it's her mom. But it's also a little bit more like her mom is a part of the power structure, right? Yeah, it's it's also because Abby is a counselor. It's exactly. not just because it's her, her mother. Exactly. Yeah. If it's Wells, it's sort of a personal betrayal, but not a personal betrayal that is also sort of fundamentally part of a system that is built around. I mean, like in, in a lot of ways, our society is sort of built on and built around personal betrayals like that. It expects and rewards that kind of personal betrayal. Yeah, yeah. So if you think about like... Well, first of all, like, how does Wells find out they're sending them down? He's got to be, like, eavesdropping on his dad or something. Or maybe Jaha is really careless. So anyway, he finds out. So he's like, this kid is frosty, right? Like, he is on top yeah. of his shit. So he's, like, listening in. And then the reasoning that has to go into making that decision, which is basically, like, there's obviously a tremendous deal of guilt attached to him letting Clark hate him for that reason. His concern for her, probably he was, like, going crazy with worry because she was imprisoned and that was something that he didn't expect to happen. And then thinking about, like, I'm here... I'm going to be stuck here. I'm going to be dying with everyone else. My best friend is in there. I mean, I sort of suspect this is like headcanon territory, obviously. But like, I sort of suspect with that, like, not that Wells doesn't love his father, but to decide, you know, like, you know what I'm going to do in this situation? I'm going to commit a crime deliberately in order to get myself arrested, in order to get sent down. Like, that's someone who sort of looked around, looked at who was left for him on the Ark, which is his father. Looked at what life on the Ark was going to be like. Looked at what living on the Ark was going to ask of him and decided... The better thing to do is to sort of strategically break the law in order to get to someplace else. I know like it's sort of presented as being like he's there because he loves Clark, you know, whether romantically or not. But I always sort of felt like with who Wells is, I didn't always completely buy that. I think it was he did want to stay with Clark, but it wasn't like, I'm going to do something crazy so I can stay with Clark. It was like, well, Clark's going to get set down there. Or I could stay here with my dad. You know, like there's a weird feeling of rejection of Jaha there. I don't know. I'm not, maybe I'm reading into it. No, I feel the same way. I, I have a lot of questions. And again, and it may be headcanon territory, but it's something that I thought about a lot is how Jake's execution and Clark's arrest impacted the relationship between Wells and his dad. Yeah. It sort of plays out a little bit. And even more so, I think, in the flashbacks. Like, I think a lot of people didn't expect that Jake was actually going to get executed. I mean, certainly Abby had no idea or not even had no idea, but Abby believed a loophole would be found that maybe he will be arrested, but surely they wouldn't execute the husband of a counselor who's a really important engineer. I think Wells probably thought the same thing. Wells is in that flashback where we see Jake and Jaha, like when they're all watching soccer. Wells knows that Jake and his dad had a relationship. Part of me wonders, was there a part of him all along that had absolute faith that Jaha would make an exception and was also surprised that he didn't? Yeah. You know, and how that changed their relationship and how that potentially prompts him to choose for what might be the rest of his life, however long that lasts, choose Clark over his dad. 
It's something that we don't obviously get any kind of an answer to, but it does seem like there is something in Jaha that begins to go off the rails, even as early as the first season when he finds out that Wells is dead. And it just becomes more and more over the course of season two and then obviously season three when he's in the City of Light. But like the disconnection from reality and what there is of like Stable has his shit together Jaha I wonder if part of what that comes from, like, is if there was this rift between him and Wells and he got no, like, it's not just that his son died, it's that he died on bad terms with him and they got no closure. And I think you're right that it seems pretty clear, even if it's never stated explicitly, that that assumption was there. It seems reasonable to think that Abby assumed that some clemency would be shown to Jake. And, you know, the timeline is tricky. We'll have to, like, in the flashback episode, we'll have to look at that. You know, it's possible that, like, she thought she could tip off Jaha before Jake actually went forward with it. So they'd sort of be like, all right, well, you know, like, slap on the wrist or whatever warning because it actually hadn't happened yet. So, I mean, I think you're right. It seems likely and reasonable to presume that she tipped everyone off because she couldn't talk Jake out of it. And she thought that what he was doing is wrong. And she believed that Jaha, her friend, would like sit down with his friend Jake, his top engineer who he needs, and they would have a conversation and Jaha would say, you can't do this. And like, it would be tense, you know, but he wouldn't be executed. But like, one interesting thing about that. For what we know about Ark society, even in the pilot, which is that all crimes are punishable by death, basically immediately, unless you're underage, in which case they're punishable by death when you're 18. Her assumption tells us something really interesting and important about the Ark, which is that for all there's talk about like how draconian and unforgiving it is, there are loopholes for the privileged. Well, that's what I was going to say. That's all about Abby's privilege. Exactly. You know, and again, this is like definitely headcanon territory, but I think it seems like You know, if you think about, like, if there's a moment when Wells, as a character, sort of became capable of being like, fuck it, I'm going to break some law in order to get to the ground. You know, it seems likely that it was the moment, it was that moment when his dad decided to execute his friend and imprison his son's best friend. Because if you're Wells and Clark growing up, I think you feel like you're sort of safe from the system. Like, you know that it's doing this stuff to other people. But there's that kind of, like, privileged sense of, well, it doesn't happen to us. And this is the moment where it's sort of like, this system, and specifically my father, could turn on anyone at any moment and at a whim, essentially, decide to float them. So there's a kind of moment of, like, you know, this system is not actually in my favor or anyone else's. And also a kind of sense in which, in retrospect, once you cross that line, you're like, well, everything's going to be okay. Oh, shit, everything is not okay. It makes you look back across to the earlier time and realize my assumption that an exception would be made for me because I'm special is also in and of itself a horrifically unfair part of the system. The fact that Jaha would have had the power to just not float Jake. And he has the power at the end of the episode to walk in and just be like, no, 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 we're not going to kill Abby. Even though Abby straight up broke the law. She broke the law. She did it. Jake did not. He got floated. Abby did. She didn't because she saved Jaha. You know, like that right there shows you how arbitrary it is, which actually makes Kane being the character who is like rules will be followed no matter what. Like it makes Kane in some ways make more sense. Like Kane is more ethical in that way because at least he has a system 
that he will not deviate from, that he will apply equally to everyone. Well, and he says to Shumway, he says, if we're going to execute 300 people, we're going to do it by the book. Right. Like, like Kane does not will keep that kind of unfairness out, which he's wrong. But like, you know, like you sort of wonder again in headcanon territory, like, is that a product of the kind of like sublimated fear of that sort of arbitrary power? We see three different approaches to people interacting with that power structure. You have on one level, you have people like Bellamy who are like, the system is fundamentally corrupt. It has never benefited me or my people. And this is what we see Diana Sidney sort of yeah, prey on later, yeah, right? Yeah, like, yeah. It'll be fun when we can compare Diana Sidney to Trump. <laughs> oh my God. Yes. I cannot wait. Yeah. Faux populism. But that we have throughout the first season in particular, and, and a little bit more later, but really in the first season, they shine a light on the aggressive class disparity on the arc and this relationship between the haves and the have-nots that comes out when you sort of throw all those people together into this, you know, hodgepodge where there is no unifying thread amongst these 100 prisoners because they're not all from the same station or the sort of the same world. And so you have people like Bellamy, whose entire experience, and Octavia too, whose entire experience with the system is that it will fuck you over at any given point because you are just a number. And so they assume that the system is always wrong. And then you have people like Kane who come at it from a point of view of the system gives them security. The system makes them feel safe. It makes them feel like they don't have to bear responsibility for the making of these decisions because very smart people a long time ago sat down and wrote this book and built this Exodus charter. And all I have to do is follow these rules. And then I am like safe within the knowledge that like I don't have to own responsibility for that. And, well, and also those, those people sat down in the past and they made rules in order to keep humans alive. Like they, so yeah, yeah. kind of faith, yeah. like, you know, like almost like a founding father's faith. Like 97 right, right. years ago, someone was like, we need some rules to make sure we don't all die up here before we can get back to the ground. They wrote those rules down and Kane is sort of like, these are the rules that the people who knew what they were doing wrote down. And so this is going to keep our species alive. And I think that what's compelling about Kane's arc where he lands at the culling is the realization that the Exodus Charter has failed in that fundamental way because yeah. he made, with the information that he had available to him, the best decision he thought he could make at the time to keep the maximum number of people alive. And because he couldn't take that whimsical leap of faith with Abby that seemed to him totally unfounded... And then 24 hours later, they realize those people didn't have to die. I think why it breaks him is it's not just like, I did something terrible and this thing happened. It's that it calls into question the trustworthiness of everything. So that's sort of the second group, right? Is like, the rules will keep us safe. The rules are here for our protection. And then you have this third class of which you have like the elites who sort of comfortably expect that the system is set up to accommodate them, whether it is by following or breaking the rules. You know, Abby's choice to break the rules to save Jaha and Jaha's choice to break the rules to save Abby have a lot to do with they come from, I think, a similar level of class privilege where rules can be sort of bent based on whatever. And I think that Clark, I mean, the princess thing is there to sort of draw a line between the way Bellamy sees the world and the way she sees the world. But Abby has that, too. Like they both just sort of expect they'll get their way, you know? And yeah. and I think it comes from being sort of immured in this world where that has traditionally always been the case with Jake's, you know, execution being, I think, the one notable exception. But it tells us something, I think, about 
that Cain didn't come from privilege. He doesn't sort of wear it effortlessly the way Clark and Abby and Jaha do. But I think you're right that I think Wells is, of those four of them, Abby, Jaha, Wells, Clark, I think Wells is the one who sees it the most clearly. Wells has the best insight of any of them at this point, you know, in the pilot, of what the system does to and makes of people. He understands how the system shapes people and how it kind of forces the choices that they make. You know, like one reason maybe why Wells lets Clark hate him is that, you know, again, like because we have so little time with Wells, it's all just headcanon. I think maybe part of him gets why Abby made the choice that she did. He understands. Yeah, yeah. Because, you know, maybe because it's not his mom, but he understands how Abby, being Abby, being a mom and a wife and also counselor, how all of that led her to think that the choice that she made was the best choice. Letting Clark hate him shows compassion for Clark in that he doesn't, he knows that it would be more painful for her to hate her mother. She would lose both parents, basically. But also it shows compassion for Abby. Yeah, it's also a kindness to Abby because it allows her to have this relationship with her daughter that she would lose. We watch it fall apart when Clark finds out what happened. I agree. I think it's as much for Abby because their family relationship is so important and he knows that. And that he's doing it as much for Abby as he is for Clark. And that says something important about the fact that he empathizes with and understands and doesn't judge Abby's choice. Yeah. And we can return to this in episode three when Clark finally figures it out and they have a little talk, you know, because I think he says something to that effect, although I can't remember exactly what. But I think it also shows like he has a more sophisticated emotional intelligence than Clark does. I mean, just kind of across the board in a lot of ways. But like, I think one thing that it shows is that when Wells looks at or thinks about the ways that other people are making choices. Wells understands that the forces shaping anyone's particular individual choice are much more complex and there are things beyond simply how that choice winds up affecting other people. A lot of other characters don't really have that level of sophistication, I think, when they're thinking about like what choice means. You know, when Abby and Kane are sort of sniping about choice, And Abby says, you know, like, you chose to float my husband. Well, like, she's right, you know, and I think she's making a valuable point about personal ethics within the system that Cain is removing himself from that choice in a way that is letting him slip out of complicity in a way that isn't right. But on the other hand, it's also kind of an obtuse thing to say. He did choose, but he also didn't. You know, like he didn't make the rule. He's not the one who passed the laws. If he didn't choose to do that, then somebody else would be ordered to do it too. You know, so it's like, it's one of those things where like, again, with Abby and Kane, you have people on opposite sides. And Clark is like Abby in this way where there's a kind of like, Abby and Clark have this sort of like, at least in season one, this ironclad inner sense of right and wrong. And I don't think either of them could articulate like a system for that. You know, it's not like they're like, here is my book on ethics, but they have this kind right, of right. like instinctual, like, this is right, this is wrong, you know, like, do the right thing, not the wrong thing. This is kind of how they they operate. You know, even though they're very different, this is the thing that they have in common. And part of the reason why Clark is so mad at Abby is that Clark thought sort of un- instinctively Jake's way was right. So Abby was doing the wrong thing, not only because her she wound up getting Jake floated, but also because she was just doing the wrong thing for the people. So Abby has these kind of obtuse moments where she's like, you made a choice. It's like, well, okay. You know, but like Wells is the one who can be in the middle and be like, you're both right and you're both wrong. And it's because both of you are acting as though you have more personal agency or your personal agency is not shaped by the system you're in, you know, in a way where Wells totally is aware. This is why he's the one who can realize like, 
hey, how do I get out of this situation? Why don't I break a law and get myself thrown in? Like no one else has figured out how to work that loophole. And I think it's because Wells recognizes that kind of like dynamic system, individual choice dynamic in a way that other people don't. It's one of the things that makes it both heartbreaking that we only get three episodes with him and it ends in such a tragic way. Because I feel like in the pilot, I think this episode sets it up where you expect that he's going to be everyone's conscience kind of over the course of the season. I think a version of this show made by different people or with a different perspective, you could totally see Wells being the hero. Maybe or maybe not ever the love interest. I know there are people who ship it. To me, it feels very platonic. And I think it's more interesting in some ways if it's fully platonic. But his love for Clark is so deep and he sees these things that she can't see. And so you're like, oh, okay, so he's going to be the one who's sort of like standing by her side and guiding her back to this sense of compassion and empathy. But he's sort of the one who thinks that relationships and compassion and listening are really important and that he's brave enough to stand in front of Bellamy's whole mob. He's not a fluffy cinnamon roll. Like, Wells is a hard ass. You know, he's yeah. not scared of them. Well, like when Murphy trips him, you know, he gets up, he's injured, he puts up his fist. He's like, all right, we're going to go. You know? Like, exactly. Yeah. He's not Yeah, he's ready. He's <laughs> yeah. not. Yeah, he's not. Yeah. And then like three episodes in, you know, he gets Ned Starked because the person who can see that the system is corrupt, but believes that there is fundamental decency in human beings anyway, killing off that character is how you signify... Now you are in a world where it doesn't matter if you're a good person. Well, and also I think like from a sort of plot standpoint, Wells is one of those characters where like because he is so even keeled and smart. (laughs) We talk about, well, if Wells was around, so many of these problems wouldn't happen. You have to kill Wells or the kids wouldn't make so many stupid mistakes. (laughs) Exactly. Yeah. (laughs) He's too smart. He's too smart for the plot. He's the only (laughs) grown up. Right. Exactly. You know, so like if... So, so in some ways, he's like an impediment because he's like too mature. If Wells had lived, like by the time the grownups land at the end of the season, they'd have like an entire village with crops growing. Right. Well, like imagine, okay, like the whole Unity Day peace talks episode. If Wells had set up those peace talks with Anya, they would have gone great. You know, like oh, if Wells yeah. is the di- diplomat, like first of all, he wouldn't have made Clark do it secretly for some dumbass reason, because we'll get into that when we get to that episode. I have a whole rant. <laughs> um, <laughs> like, you know, like, so, so an entire like source of conflict is just eliminated if Wells yeah. lives. Unfortunately, because he's wonderful, but he's almost too, he's like too wonderful for this world in so many ways. Yeah. Like, he's too good for this world. It was one of these things we say about characters we love, but he's also too good for this world from a sort of like basic plot structure. <laughs> right, 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 right. Yeah. There'd be no show. Yeah. yeah. Like, you just can't have somebody who can solve problems that efficiently around for too long. Too long. Um, <laughs> which is interesting. I think like, so to circle back to Finn for a minute, you know, it's interesting thinking about it now, like how much of a connecting thread Wells really is in the early episodes like Wells oh yeah so Wells is like so 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 crucial to the first three episodes and then it's it winds up being so crucial that he dies for so many reasons you know because like there's so many threads that run through him but I think one interesting thing I'm kind of circle back to our issues with Finn we could also have a a segment called how do you solve a problem like Finn Collins (laughs) (laughs) which I've been thinking about in the back of my mind as we've been talking you can actually sing it how do you solve the problem like Finn Collins? Um, <laughs> I think we should do that every week because they'll give us. I just, <laughs> I just love you so much. <laughs> Don't worry. Uh, Next episode of the podcast, everyone, I'll have the whole song written and I'll sing it for you. Um, I'm so excited. <laughs> 
So one of the the issues with Finn, and I think we were talking about this when we were watching. In one aspect, Finn feels like a character who sort of like dropped in from another CW show, you know? So he's got a lot of the kind of like characteristics of a, a very much like the love interest guy from any old teen show. But the weird thing about Finn, you know, like I never liked Finn. And I'm sorry for any of our listeners who do like Finn. I know people who do. I have good friends who love Finn. And I'm sorry, Anna, because we're going <laughs> to say bad things about him. But like Finn always bothered me from the beginning. And it took me actually a few rewatches to figure out exactly what it was that bugged me so much. Because like it wasn't just kind of like personal annoyance with his character. It was a little bit like there's a kind of like knee jerk gut sort of like, I just don't like that kind of character. It was like, here's the cute guy you're supposed to want to kiss the lead. I'm like, no, thank you. So there was that, but I realized like it was more than that. On a more fundamental level, there was something about his character that it just like was not working for me. When I first got into the show, I rewatched seasons one and two like six or seven times all the way through back to back. Like I'd get to the end of season two and start over. And I think so it took me like the, like the third rewatch, I think the third time through, I started tr- finally figuring it out. And I think the thing is that unlike characters like Clark, particularly an Abby and Kane and even a Jasper to a certain extent who are immediately like solidly themselves. Right. Instantly compelling, fully realized characters. You go back and watch them later and you realize like, oh my God, these characters have been these characters since the beginning. Whatever problems sort of crop up in later season writing, like the sort of central core characters are really, at least for the first two seasons are really kind of there. I think Raven that's true of as well when she arrives. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, The problem with Finn is that I really get the feeling that that Finn never felt like that. Finn never felt fully realized. And especially this is true in the first half of season one. I think the difference between, and this might be interesting to sort of track as we rewatch, Octavia kind of suffers from that a little bit in that she's got like kind of like she's the CW babe character. You know, she's a little bit cliched in terms of like, well, who's Octavia? She's the wild child who's always mad at her brother, you know. The difference between Finn and Octavia is that they start out maybe being like not quite so fully realized. In Octavia's case, they found her by I think the middle of the season, second half of the season. They really found who Octavia was. They found that core of her and it went from there. I don't think they ever really found who Finn was. The thing that I noticed about Finn is like, so even in the pilot, there's a lot of mixed signals from the show about Finn. So on the one hand, you have the kind of like, designated love interest Finn. And that's the guy who, when Clark tells the group about the arc running out of air, he stops and he like looks soulfully into her eyes and says, we got to warn them. And she says, that's what my father said. You know, which is like one of those like super duper like (gasps) love kind of moments. Yeah. Which again, like the part of me that hates a show telling me what to ship is just like, yeah, (laughs) (laughs) that's just me. That Finn fits with the Finn who brings her water when she's looking at the glowing flowers and the Finn who flirts with Octavia, you know, and the Finn who's kind of like sweet and rakish in that kind of like cute boy way, who like sort of flirtily teases with Clark and calls her princess and so on and so forth. So there's that Finn. And then there's the Finn, the sort of like scamp, rakish, bad boy breaks all the rules Finn. The Finn who unbuckles his seatbelt and floats around as they're coming down. And the Finn who's like apparently climbing the side of the dropship and then like jumps down in between to break up a fight, which I think is supposed to be, I think that was supposed to be like, ooh, badass kind of moment. I was always just like, oh my God. Like we all knew that dumbass kid in middle school. Sorry, everybody. Sorry, everybody. I can't be objective about Finn. Um, and also who, and, and who like, you know, so when he brings Clark the water, she says, did you go to the river? And he's like, I figured it was worth risking a finger too. But like, 
But so there's there's the Finn who's like kind of the sweet designated love interest guy. And then there's the Finn who is sort of like reckless and thoughtless and was floated for going on a thrill ride, which, you know, gets retconned in season two. But I don't think there's any really indication in season one that they knew that that was why he got. Yeah, I, I don't think that this Finn was written that way. I Definitely think this not. Finn was written that he was a spacewalker. Yes, he was spacewalker. He made a stupid ass decision. Okay, so like theoretically, okay, so so like that could be one coherent character, right? It's a little bit choppy, but like, all right, so he's like the kind of like bad boy, wild child with a heart of gold, you know, who's like- Right, 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 right. But like, lovable rogue, right. yeah. But like the mixed signals come in, and I think maybe this goes back to they hadn't totally landed on which show they were going to be, because there's the, the CW kind of like music montage show, and then there's the really dark show that- that they wind up kind of going for. And both of those things are happening with Finn too, where you have like sweet music montage thing with the glowing flowers. But then when he unbuckles and floats around, the upshot of that is that Finn does something stupid and reckless and a couple other kids follow him and they die. Yeah. Which is terrible. And they linger on that moment. Like Clark warns him that it's going to happen and then it does. And then when they're getting off the ship, he kneels down and he's looking at them and he's realizing what he's done. And then we kind of rush past it, you know, because they're all going to get off the ship and nobody remembers those two kids and nobody's thinking about it. But I remember when I'm going back and rewatching, especially after season two, after 205 or whatever it is, when Finn goes off the rails. And even later on this season, with some of the decisions that he makes, in many ways, the fact that the first thing we see about Finn Collins is that he makes a stupid, show-offy, kind of reckless choice for himself, that repercussions of which are that other people die, is totally in keeping with who he becomes as a character. Yeah. But it is totally out of line with who the first half of season one tries to tell us that Finn is. That is the core. That's what bugs me. Because Finn, in season one, gets treated by the narrative in a lot of cases, especially after Wells dies, as being the kind of voice of reason, pacifist, good guy, always like making the ethical argument character. But that is not actually who Finn is. Finn does things like sneaks away at night, which no one is supposed to do, doesn't tell anyone where he's supposed to go, finds a bunker full of supplies that would help everyone and convinces Clark not to share. Like that is terrible. That is a terrible thing to do. That is selfish. That is reckless. That is thoughtless. That is totally counter to the group. Like hate Bellamy all you want. He's an asshole, but he's out there hunting to keep them alive. Like Finn is out there wandering around at night, not to help anyone else, but because he thinks it's cute. And all of this, we find out later, is in the context of he has a girlfriend. Yeah. So he's making these irresponsible choices to sort of woo Clark in a way that once we meet Raven and realize that Raven is his person, it sheds an even more questionable light on it. Yeah. Because a lot of these people still think there's a chance that the arc can still come down. Like, that's what they're all still working he's towards. He's like flirting when he's on the fucking dropship. Like, even Clark points out later, he leaves the bracelet on so that Raven knows that he's alive. So I think, like, for me, the thing that bothers me about Finn, and again, it'll be interesting on this rewatch to kind of look at it. And I'm really interested, one thing I'm interested in doing on this rewatch is looking at Finn in season one and seeing if we can find the DNA of what they do with him in season two. Because yeah. I think yeah, it's yeah, yeah. there. I yeah. think it's there. But I, it's, it wasn't intentional, so it'll be interesting to uncover. But the thing that bothers me with Finn, I think, is not so much that those different aspects of him exist as a character because obviously like a person can be many things you can be reckless and also very caring you know you can be stupid and smart at different times you can be selfish and selfless like that is definitely true but I think like the thing that they just never quite figured out how to deal with with Finn is how to position him towards the audience 
You know, like the way that I think yeah. he's supposed to feel about Finn, the role that he's supposed to feel, which after Wells dies, he takes over Wells' role in a lot of ways. Clark is kind of like the decision maker on the ground, you know, like even when she's partners with Bellamy, so much of the season... What we see over and over again when a decision has to be made is Finn on one side, Bellamy on the other, and Clark choosing which side to go with. And so I think we're supposed to see Finn in a lot of ways as kind of like he takes over the role of Wells as being the kind of like, you know, Bellamy is always reliably going to go like shoot first, ask questions later, you know, especially in season one. And Finn is always going to be the one who chooses peace, you know, which is kind of like the way Wells goes. But that role does not really square with the kind of recklessness that he shows and the kind of selfishness, I think, that he shows. And so I think it winds up accidentally making him sanctimonious. Yeah. Or like it makes him come across as insincere. That combined with the whole like Raven Clark cheating thing makes yeah. him seem like really insincere and kind of like hypocritical to the detriment of, I think, what they were trying to do with him as a kind of like counter voice to Bellamy on the ground. We could talk about Bellamy in a minute in terms of like the way that they clearly sort of decided not to just make him the villain on the ground and then, you know, to make him Clark's partner. But I think also possibly one reason why so much of the audience sided with Bellamy is that it was maybe supposed to be more of a kind of like even thing between Finn and Bellamy's side, but like it just never really worked with Finn, in my opinion. I think you're right on that. For me watching it again, the problem with it isn't that Finn possesses contradictory traits. It's that the narrative shifts direction as to whether those things are right or wrong in a way that feels messy. And I think that it's a problem that in season two, I think we see with Lexa and in season three, we see it with Bellamy, where you have actions that are fundamentally morally gray and messy and the narrative either doesn't adequately kind of undergird them with an explanation as to why that choice is made or the narrative is inconsistent in how it addresses that particular trait in a way that varies from character to character. Yeah, in season three, I mean, I think that's a problem that is there in the background in certain cases in seasons one and two that becomes like a central problem in season three for a number of characters, including Lexa and Bellamy, where there's a kind of like shell game going on. Right, right, right. Is the idea of excusing somebody's bad or destructive or harmful behavior because they were making the right choice for someone they care about fundamentally good or fundamentally bad or situational depending on other factors. And then you have the narrative kind of switching horses midstream on a lot of different characters about whether those are right or wrong. And I think Finn is the first real example of that kind of narrative inconsistency. I think what's too bad is that there's the bones of a really interesting character in Finn. I I think the idea of somebody who is sort of playfully roguish when things are low stakes and then is kind of in over his head and makes some really dumb mistakes when they're high stakes because he's not prepared for what the ground's actually going to be like. And that then when the reality kind of sets in that this is life or death, that he throws in his lot with Clark, that he decides, you know, he's going to be like on Clark's team, but he's still a person that has terrible judgment. Yeah, yeah, I think that's right. I'm not fundamentally opposed to that in any way. And I think that there's bits and pieces of that there. But I think what makes the leap from peace talks Finn to shooting up a grounder village Finn 
tricky is that neither of those things really have as deep emotional roots as I want them to, given how fully formed some of the other characters are. Like you said, there's like bones for a really interesting character in Finn. And maybe the issue is just there never is quite a full, consistent core to Finn as a character. You know, like they found the core for Octavia. I don't think they ever found the core for Finn. Finn just sort of slides around a little bit in a way that like, you know, like we were talking about earlier, where like Kane and Bellamy can totally flip sides apparently from season one to season three. But the kind of core of the character, you think about a character, what's their number one motivation for them as a person? That remains the same for Kay and Bellamy, I think. And I think it would be hard to articulate what's the core motivation for Finn. In the pilot, there are fully, I think, three quarters of these characters that you already could break that down. You could define what motivates Abby, what motivates Kane and Bellamy, and even Octavia, Clark, definitely, Wells, definitely, Jaha, Jasper and Monty, even, I think. You can look at these characters and you can figure out who they are and what drives them and what their relationships are that are key to them. And you can trace those in a straight line to where they end up in season three, even though you could never predict from the pilot where somebody like Jaha would end up at season three, you know, or Octavia killing Pike and then just sort of strutting away. Like you wouldn't have predicted that that's where the line was going to end up. But once you know that, you can see the roots of it in these things that are happening already. And I think that the real strength of the pilot is just how many of those characters, those roots are already planted for. Because I watched the show in the spring when you watched it with me, and then Mm -hmm. I didn't watch it again until I went back and rewatched season one over Christmas with my brother. And that was the first time I'd seen it since I watched it for the first time. And I had forgotten in that intervening time how much they want you to be thinking about Finn and rooting for Finn and shipping Finn with Clark. Like how goddamn much Finn there is in the first season because he was a character that didn't really grab me and I kind of forgot about him. And then I was like, oh, my God, it's like the Finn show the first half of the season, really. He's in every storyline on the ground. And in a way that is rarely, I think, super satisfying. And even knowing where, like, like (laughs) both my brother and sister who may watch the show who have only seen the first season were like, oh, Finn is so annoying. Does he die? Like, (laughs) they really wanted to know that he died. And I was like, yes. And they were like, good. And I was like, oh, my God, I feel so like. For your sister, too, who's, like, not the kind of person normally. No. Does that guy die? You know, like. Yeah, she's like, oh, I'm so annoyed. But I think it's because it's a combination of that tonal thing that they no longer feel like they have to stick to because they've defined the show as being something else entirely. The thing I love the most about season three is how decisively it has moved away from being a CW teen drama. It happens sort of over the course of season two. There's still some of that, although there's obviously substantially less. But I think the fact that season three centers the adults and new adults at the core of so many of these stories and mixes up the kids' relationships with each other to work in a much more sort of age-diverse cast and stories that are less about Clark's love life, I think is a sign that this was always a show that they wanted to make. And I think they were hamstrung by probably things like network notes or by trying to appeal to a particular demographic to make sure that they got a season two pickup. And this feels like a pilot that they were selling to the CW. You know, exactly, yeah, yeah. That the CW would buy. 
Right. And then they made the first season of the show in line with the pilot that they pitched them. And then once it was established that the writing was good and these characters were good and it was going somewhere interesting and they got to pick up for a longer season, I think that vote of confidence going into season two made them probably feel like they could begin to write the show that they wanted, which was always, I think, more Lord of the Flies than the OC. Another contrast between like Finn versus other characters in the pilot. And I think like weirdly and sort of like, it's funny because like even characters like Kane and Bellamy that you hated at the beginning, but sort of had some sympathy for, had some like something that grabbed you. And this goes back to the motivation thing. Is Finn the only character in the pilot who doesn't have an established relationship to someone that we're told is really important and motivating to them? I think he is. I think he is because what I wonder about is the way the camera cuts away from him when they're talking about, we want the people who love us on the ark to know that we're alive and come down here. And I think if they were meaning to foreshadow Raven, the camera would have lingered on him more and it doesn't. And I think it's because in the pilot, I think this version of Finn, Raven may or may not have existed because there was a version of the pilot where Raven was his mother. That's right. Yeah. yeah, In the first draft. So I think that they went through a couple different iterations of who Raven is or of, you know, if there's Raven at all. But I do think that just looking at the pilot out of context of anything else, we're not given anything that indicates in any kind of a direct way that he has anybody. Yeah, yeah, I think you're right. I think if we were meant to believe that he was, I think the camera would have stayed on him for a reaction shot in that moment where then you go, oh, he's thinking of somebody specific. And it doesn't. You're right, I think you're right. Which is an interesting thing, I think, that they have him as this character who's kind of totally unattached. But I think perhaps it winds up having some sort of unintended consequences Because like for so many of the other characters, even in the pilot, their core motivations are tied to those like key relationships that they have. We know that Bellamy shot Jaha because of Octavia. Like we know that he's there for her. Like whatever kind of asshole he is, whatever conflict it is, we know that it's about Octavia. We know that Wells did what he did because of Clark. He cares about everybody else, you know, and he cares about the people on the Ark, but he was motivated by Clark. We know that Abby is motivated by Clark and the kids. We know that Kane has a relationship with Callie. You know, Callie, who was introduced to us, is very sympathetic. You know, we're supposed to like her. She likes yeah. Kane. She sort of looks at him and says, why are you doing this? So we're sort of prompted to think that, like, there is something redeemable to Kane, that he's not a totally cold, unfeeling person, you know, whatever. Yeah, someone who's clearly a good person really cares about him a lot and understands him really well. Exactly. So even though we don't really see, like, nobody's like, this is Kane's person. There's sort of like, there are things that are happening that sort of indicate that he has somebody. You know, Monty and right. Jasper have each other. Octavia has Bellamy. I mean, the only other people who don't really have anybody, everybody else is a background character. Like, that basically covers everyone. Central. There's Murphy, but Murphy's just a kind of like generic asshole bad guy and doesn't have anybody. And he's a bad guy, right? So he's sort of like unmoored, especially if you think about like Kane as being set up as being an antagonist and kind of a bad guy on the arc. It's maybe significant that Abby is motivated by love for Clark and concern for the kids, but especially by love for Clark. She's willing to do all sorts of like crazy shit on faith for love. All of the good characters do that. Wells does that. You know, Bellamy does that. We hate him right now because he's an asshole, but he does that. You know, like, this is what turns out to be redeemable for him. This is why he can have that redemption arc later. 
Clark is motivated, like she's got these relationships. She thinks about her father, you know, like sort of introduced to all these like very powerful relationships that she has, you know, and this kind of like this sense that she has of keeping people going. So it's funny because like one of the things that all of the people that were supposed to sympathize with the most, and you know, this is one of those things that's consistent in the show starting from the pilot all the way through season three is, you know, that idea that like anything you do for love is on some level, maybe justifiable or yeah, yeah, or yeah. That, like deep love is the thing that makes people do things, you know, and like right. sometimes they do stupid things and sometimes they do bad things and sometimes they do good things. But like whatever it is, when the people on the show that were supposed to sympathize with do things, they're motivated by like kind of deep sense of love. And so it's interesting that in, you know, in the pilot, we get Finn as the only like, quote unquote, good guy, person that we're supposed to sympathize with, who does not have that. He does things because he feels like it. You know, he does things regardless of how it hurts anybody else. You know, the first thing we see him do is unbuckling because he feels like it. He doesn't give a shit what it's going to do to anybody else. And then it hurts people. You know, so it's kind of interesting. It just occurred to me this time. It's sort of interesting that that, I sort of wonder if that isn't like, piece of the DNA of Finn as a character that sets him apart that they never quite got past. Because of course, later on, we find out like the retcon in season two is that the reason that Finn got arrested is because he did something stupid for love for Raven. But that in some ways does square with the Finn of season one and in some ways doesn't. You know, it squares with the stupid stuff that he does for love for Clark. But it doesn't square with the Finn in the pilot who doesn't seem to act like he is thinking about or loves Raven at all. And I wonder if one of the reasons maybe like that whole thing didn't quite click is because that pilot Finn is not the Finn that they're trying to tell us later is always motivated by this kind of core sense of, you know, like when he shoots up the village, it's supposedly like the motivation that we're given is that he just loves too much. Like he's driven crazy by his love and concern for Clark. In the same way that he did a sort of like a really stupid thing because he loved Raven so much. Like that's the right. thing that Finn does is he makes bad decisions. He has poor judgment because he thinks with his heart, you know, like, okay, yes, but that's a retcon for Finn. I think part of the reason that if you look at season one as a whole, where I think Finn doesn't gel is because like you just said, like he does not behave right off the bat like somebody who left behind him a girlfriend that he deeply, deeply loves. Yeah. Who he made this kind of self-sacrificial gesture for. And we know from the very first minute that Raven is introduced that she's been visiting him every week. Yeah. It's not like he was tossed in there and he hasn't seen her for a year. This isn't like Bellamy and Octavia where he hasn't seen her. And still fucking shot the chancellor to get on the dropship to get to her. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Like we are told like in canon textually that they have regular contact because it is unusual enough that Raven can't get in to see Finn that she starts to question what's going on. Like the prompt for her to start snooping around is that she wants to go visit Finn and can't, which means she's used to being able to go visit Finn, if not whenever she wants to, at least on enough of a regular basis, that it's just expected. Yeah. So to me, that says like, they didn't break up when he got arrested. Right, exactly. She's still his girlfriend. Yeah, like they still have an ongoing relationship. So like when he's on that dropship and when he gets down there and he starts flirting with everything that moves before settling on Clark, like right. he's acting like a guy who's like, sweet, this is a free pass. I'm free of the girlfriend I didn't know how to break up with, which actually squares perfectly with the guy that Finn is in season one, where he spends half of the season not being able to bring himself to break up with Raven because he doesn't want to hurt her, even though he's like emotionally cheating on her. And I will say, I think the thing that I I really love about how that storyline is handled 
To a degree that that felt really unusual to me for a show like this is that it never pits the women against each other. Yes, I was very happy about that. It is clearly 100% Finn and Finn's choices. And both Raven and Clark handle it incredibly maturely and responsibly. Like Clark shuts it down, basically, you know, and Raven correctly And like, she's upset at Clark, but she blames Finn more than she blames Clark when she realizes that Clark had no idea that she existed. I appreciated that. I appreciated that too. Like they handled that really well, but again, it doesn't make Finn look very good, which means that no, it, it makes Finn look awful. One, in the moments where he is supposed to be the voice of morality. Yeah. You're like, why am I listening to this guy? Right. That's why it feels like, ugh. I mean, like technically, yes, you're right. But God, you know, like... I suppose I should listen to you, but at what cost? <laughs> and, I, <laughs> and, I, and I think it cuts particularly deep because of the characters that are introduced in season one. Raven is one of the most immediately fully realized and just instantly one of the best characters on television. Oh, yeah. But the fact that he's so cavalier about his relationship with a character who they know that we're all going to fall instantly in love with. Yeah. Like how... How you expect the audience to sort of stick with a POV character of somebody who is flagrantly cheating on a character that you are introducing because you know that she is immediately going to be everybody's favorite. Right, yeah. I think the reason that I get squicked out by it is they're all convinced the arc's going to land. Yeah. Communication is down, but they think they're going to get to Matt Weather and there'll be radios or, you know, well, we've got the wristband. So it isn't as though... All hope of seeing Raven is gone by the time he's on the dropship. Or even by the time they're all on the ground and they sort of realize like the position that they're in and like, oh no, they're taking the wristbands off. Like everyone's going to think that it's the radiation. But like hope is not abandoned. The goal of Clark's squad remains always to help bring the Ark to the ground. Finn justifies it to himself like his relationship with Raven is unrelated to his relationship with Clark because he didn't believe that he would ever see Raven again. But that's not ever at any point how that group collectively is behaving. No, exactly. Yeah, it's like if we're supposed to sympathize with him, he exists in a totally different sort of like set of rules or or different reality, right? And if he's in the same reality as them, then yeah, like then he's sort of fooling himself and so it really really undermines their attempt to sort of reposition him as like the wells figure in the leadership of the delinquents because of that kind of core problem yeah because i don't i don't trust his moral judgment exactly Exactly, right he's like this is why he seems sanctimonious because he's standing around being like well this is right and this is wrong and like and again like you know in, in in a lot of cases what he's saying about sort of like how they should deal with the ground or conflict he's right but again like you said like We don't trust his moral judgment. So like, even when he's right, it's just sort of like, I mean, I guess you're right, but it's maybe for the wrong reasons because like, (laughs) you're at best a hypocrite. Right, right. Yeah. And I I think it's interesting. Like, you know, I feel the way I feel about Finn having watched all the seasons that he is in now multiple times. But it is interesting that like, I've talked to a lot of people who felt the same way watching it for the first time. So it isn't that he comes off this way in the context of us knowing the horrible atrocities he commits later. Yeah, it's there from the beginning. It's there from minute one, where you're like, I don't know why I'm being asked to treat you as a voice that is worth listening to and trusting when your behavior is so morally inconsistent. 
And there's nothing wrong with being a character who's morally inconsistent, but the narrative is telling us that he is consistent and he's not. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. I think that's like the disconnect that like bugs me so much. And again, like, <laughs> I hope you all enjoy this extended rant about Finn because I have a lot more <laughs> coming up over the course of the season. They asked for it. This is what the people wanted. They wanted Claire and Aaron to talk about season one. That's what you're getting. Strap in. <laughs> So we're a ways in and we haven't really talked about Bellamy yet, which obviously is making me twitch. (laughs) I was just thinking, I was like, we're probably going to need to shift gears and talk about Bellamy before Aaron goes crazy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Let's talk about Balark. I'm sure you want to. I bet you have thoughts. You know, and it's funny because the first episode, they don't actually really interact that much, like in a, in a sort of sustained way. You know, there's the, the yeah. exchange at the dropship door, which sort of establishes them as being sort of antagonists, where she's like, stop and wait. You know, what if the air is poisoned? And he's like, well, then we're dead anyway. Let's just do this. They're more like leaders of warring factions exactly. than people with a relationship with each other yet. Yes, exactly. I mean, they don't really have a relationship. You know, there's that exchange, which is very sort of short and then you know when Clark is saying like we need to go to Mount Weather they have that kind of exchange about class you know where where, like she's saying we all need to go get food it's long walk and Bellamy is the one who's like speaking for everybody else of course but Bellamy is the one who says okay you do it you know let let the privilege do the hard work for the change there are people who think that Bullark has been you know intended as the end game relationship from the beginning I actually don't really I don't think so no, I think the lesson of rewatching it for me has been that I think Finn was supposed to be romantic so endgame and that they realized there was only so far that Finn relationship was ever really going to be able to go. Yeah, no, I agree. And I think we can talk about this when we get to the finale, but the Finn-Clark trajectory of they get together at the beginning, there's a kind of like, you know, Raven comes in as the derailing love interest to break them up for a while. Mm-hmm. And then we get to the end of season one with Finn telling her that he loves her and Clark saying that she can't. That feels very much to me. When they wrote the finale of season one, what was in their heads was an arc in season two that brought Finn and Clark back together. Yes. And they changed their mind. I totally agree. But Clark and Bellamy are very clearly being set up in the pilot. And this is another one of those things that they do. You know, it's not like super subtle, but it is very efficient where they draw a line in the sand among the delinquents and they put Clark on one side and Bellamy on the other. So Clark is the sort of one, again, who's outwardly like, we got to follow the rules. The Ark told us to do this. We should do it. You know, who sort of seems like the goody two-shoes, but who we know, you know, we as an audience, because she's she's our point of view character for the most part, we understand. Like, we understand that her motivation is actually like, she's worried they're going to starve to death. Right. She's right for worrying that, you know, like, she's the one who realizes because it's Clark has no chill griffin. Mm-hmm. She's her mother's daughter. She hits the ground and she looks around and she goes like, we don't have any water or food. We're all going to be in big trouble very, very quickly if we don't get a move on. But she kind of like comes across as being princessy, as being sort of like, I am the speaker for the leadership on the Ark. And I think right. what's really interesting, you know, that, that moment with Bellamy, where they have that little exchange, she's like saying, we got to go get food. And he says, well, why don't you do that for a change? I think what's interesting about that exchange is that, you know, when Bellamy draws the line in the sand, like he has that instinct for how to appeal to people and win them over to his side. That's like one of the core traits for Bellamy for season one and even in season two. But like the thing about Bellamy, you know, if you think about like Clark is head and Bellamy is heart. Clark yeah. is like the head. She's thinking we can't survive without food and water. We got to go do this thing. She doesn't really know how to appeal to people. Bellamy knows how to appeal to people, but he's not really thinking about like consequences at this point. But he's very, very good at like in that moment, he recognizes that if he sort of makes this about class, mm-hmm. about like work needs to be done so he can survive. 
then he can sort of win over the group to his side, even though Clark is making the better argument or is making the more like substantive argument. He's sort of appealing to their anger. Right. Because they're not hungry yet. But it's like one of those distinct moments is one of those moments when, you know, the pilot is telling us like, here's our protagonist and our antagonist, you know, like here's the right, right. trying to save everybody. And here's the guy who's going to try to get in the way. He's going to try to interfere with her every step of the way. Yeah. And then, you know, they're separated for us the rest of the episode. Clark leaves and Bellamy stays and they don't really interact after that, which is sort of interesting to sort of like to have a whole pilot where the protagonist and the antagonist spend most of it apart. But they managed to kind of set that up very clearly. I have things my shipper heart could say about Bilark in the pilot, but I'm going to save that <laughs> for other occasions because this is metastation and I try to like at least kind of not go totally off the rails into <laughs> shipping head cannons. One thing that's really interesting about Bellamy in the pilot, Wells stays behind. He's the voice of the kind of practicality as well. And again, I think one thing that they did so, so well in the first season, as the writers, I think, was they seemed to be really remarkably good at recognizing the potential that they had in the actors that they had and yeah. working with that. And I do think that Bellamy was one of those cases. And this has been talked about a lot in other places. But I mean, I think you can see that especially in his exchange with Wells. You know, because like there's a heart of it there. We're told that he did what he did to get to the ground because he loves Octavia. And that's who he's motivated by. We know that he's scared. You know that he thinks that when they come down, he's going to die. So we're sort of like given these motivations. And we get like shots of him like when Clark is explaining the wristbands. Kind of like we see a shot of him like thinking about it and getting his idea. But one place where he does like an especially good job of giving a lot of nuance and depth to Bellamy's character that another performance wouldn't have found is in the argument that he has with Wells when he's getting the kids to take off their wristbands. And Wells makes the case like, what are you doing? Like, do you want your families to think that you're dead? We need them to know so that they come down so that our farmers and our engineers come down. Do you think that we can survive without them? So Wells makes both an emotional appeal in terms of family and also like a rational appeal, a logical appeal in terms of like, we don't have the abilities or the knowledge to survive without them. Right. In the long term. We're not a society. Right. We're kids. You know, like we don't know. Like the only adult here, the only person on the ground right now who's over the age of 18 is Bellamy. Right. So Wells is also making a very logical appeal about like, we literally do not know how to survive left to our own devices. And like one really great thing I think about Bob Mueller's performance is like, you know, he makes his little like cocky bravado-y speech against Wells at first. And then Wells turns it around and makes his speech about, you know, like peeling about the families and then also talking about their sort of practical need for the people on the Ark. In the reaction shots that we get of Bellamy, you can see him thinking about what Wells says. On his face, there's a kind of moment of contemplation. And I think what's implied is that Bellamy recognizes that Wells is right. Like, it's not that Bellamy doesn't get it. And in some ways, this makes him worse. He recognizes the merit to Wells' argument, but he's still so, like, wrapped up in himself and he's so afraid of what's going to happen when the people come down. He hates them so much for what they've done to him that in that moment, the choice that he makes is he's able to sort of identify, like, okay, he said X. What do I need to say in order to, like, get the rest of the kids to go with me to do what I need to do in order for me to survive? So, like, the argument that he makes is sort of, like, is very savvy, you know, like, it's to recognize, like, Wells has the logical upper hand. Right. But he has the sort of, like, understanding of the people that they're speaking to to know how to appeal to them in order to win that argument. And I think that tells us a lot about Bellamy, you know, in terms of like the kind of asshole that he is for the first half of the season, which is just like (laughs) motivated by fear and selfishness, you know, like he does terrible things because all he's thinking is, 
how am I going to get out of this thing alive with my sister alive? And he doesn't really care about anybody else. And he does whatever he has to do. But it also tells us, like, it gives us a little sort of hint, I think, even in the pilot of, like, there's another Bellamy in there who on some level recognizes that what he's doing is fucked up. Like, this is the first little seed of the Bellamy who's going to sit under the tree and day trip in 108 and say, I'm a monster. We get that little seed of recognition in Bellamy's mind that what he is doing is playing with people's lives. And he's sort of able to to put that aside because he's convinced himself he needs to do what he needs to do. And he's convinced himself not to care about anybody else. But it's there. So I think, you know, like later on when he's talking to Wells, when he says, hell, I like you. I don't want to kill you. That scene, I think, was really interesting for that reason. Yeah. And I think like if you think about a different performance or a different way that that could be framed, that's one of those like villain throwaway lines, right? Like how many movies are there in which the villain in the moment where they're talking to the good guy, they're like giving their like, I'm waiting to kill you speech says something like, I like you, you know, like I got nothing against you. Like that's a villain thing to say. But I think because of the sort of like seeds that we get in the performance of Bellamy, it actually like reads as being very sincere. Oh, yeah. You totally believe it. Bellamy likes Wells. There is a part of Bellamy that is not even like so pushed down that he can't consciously acknowledge it. That's like, oh, this guy's pretty smart. And that he also, I think in that moment, he's able to make a distinction that the rest of the group is not between Wells and his father. Yeah. He certainly hates Jaha as much as anyone else hates Jaha, but he's able to see clearly that Wells just being Jaha's son doesn't make them the same. He uses that strategically. I mean, like he plays the you're the chancellor's son, fuck you card in front of everybody else. Yeah. But that in that moment, when it's just the two of them, when he says, like, I need them to think you're dead, I need for my own strategic purposes to appear to be your enemy. But like down here, when it's just you and me, like, I think you're an all right guy. And that's really interesting to me. That's unexpected. That's the first really startling thing we see Bellamy do. And I think you also begin to see Bellamy is able to distinguish between Thelonious and Wells. Right. I think also because Bellamy recognizes, you know, in the argument that Wells makes about the wristbands, Wells is not appealing to his privilege at all. Wells is saying, mm-hmm. like, this is about the people who care about you, and this is about practical survival. You know, this isn't like, right. I need my dad to come down. This is, we need farmers. We don't know how to grow yeah. food. So part of that speech, Bellamy recognizes, like, this guy is genuine. You know, like, yeah. this guy is genuinely not thinking about his social position. He's thinking about what we right. need. And I think also because Wells at that point has been doing a lot of work, you know, like, mm-hmm. he's, he's like, we need to gather water, you know, so like Bellamy's kind of thrown around, like, let the privilege do the hard work for the change. And Wells does it. And Wells is doing it. So yeah. I think there's a part of Bellamy that is kind of two-faced right now. He's got, like you said, he's, he's got like leader Bellamy who feels as though he needs to maintain a certain persona in order to maintain control. He needs to manipulate them into taking off their wristbands. And the way that he's able to get control is through this kind of like, whatever the hell we want persona. And so there's that. And then there's another part of him that recognizes, you know, that's able to sort of like recognize like in another life, he and Wells would be friends, which is one of those great losses of Wells dying is like, it would have been amazing to see those two. Yeah. Friends, oh my God. You know? yeah. like, that could have been great. I would be very curious to actually know to what degree or how much the writers were responding to what Bob found in Bellamy. You know, because like, if you look at just like the dialogue, if you just look at the words on the page, a lot of it just comes off the page as pretty straight up villain. In a lot of ways, like very lobbed right across the plate, like, hi, I'm the antagonist, you know, like, I'm going to say all the antagonist things, you know, but there's a lot more nuance to it that I think really in many ways comes down to the performance. So I'd be very interested to know 
what aspects of Bellamy they chose to play up as the season went on because, you know, he sort of like found those bits. And I think it'd be interesting too, like thinking ahead to episode four and, you know, we can come back to it when we get there. When Bellamy kicks the stool out from under Murphy and hangs him because the crowd is chanting at him. In a lot of ways, Bellamy made that choice then because in the pilot, he had set himself up to believe that his control and therefore his safety was predicated on cultivating and maintaining a certain persona. And then also through that persona, placating and playing to the crowd. So in some ways, like what Bellamy does in episode four is like the logical conclusion of the sort of leadership that he committed himself to in the pilot. And then episode four is the moment where he realizes and Clark realizes that, you know, that's not going to work. Like this is the end of the line for that version of us. And we have to find some other version, some other way to be in order to keep surviving. But even though so much of what he does is just like straight up asshole and there's not that much interaction between him and Clark, I think like the seeds of that for Bellamy, the seeds of the kind of like that disconnect between who he is kind of to the group and the person that's inside who is all along thinking about on some level what his mother would think of what he's doing. Yeah. Is there, you know, like there's like somewhere inside of Bellamy, there's like a little boy who's like screaming and crying and dying as he's doing these things. Oh God. Oh, now I'm picturing the, the little, the Bellamy child actor and his cute little face. Yeah. And just sort of like crying and being like, why are you doing yeah. that? Like, or just like rocking in place and whispering over and over again, my sister, my responsibility, oh. my sister, my responsibility. My heart, you're killing me. You're killing me. <laughs> <laughs> well, and, you know, if you think about it too, like the kind of relationship relationship that Bellamy had to the system, which is mm-hmm. sort of complicated because he did, you know, there's like a period in his life where he became, he was a cadet guard. So he has a very complicated relationship to the system because on the one hand, mm-hmm. his entire life has been predicated on the fact that like he is breaking a law that will kill everyone that he loves if it's ever found out. He is like acutely aware at every moment in a way that most other people are not that this system is out to get him. And yet he still winds up being a guard, you know? And like, Mm -hmm. so he's like both inside of it and outside of it, sort of like complicit in it and opposed to it. And so, you know, if you think about like what that does to him, I think there's so much of Bellamy you can sort of think about as being like a child with a deeply emotionally traumatic childhood. You Mm -hmm. know, so if you think about like that little kid whose entire life is like, your survival and the survival of everyone you care about is like 100% down to you and your choices because at any moment, the system that protects everyone else could turn around and kill you. Right. Like that's very much kind of what's motivating him here. And maybe he learned to sort of separate who he had to be on the outside from who he was on the inside. He had to learn to sort of like silence that inner conscience a little bit in order to do things, the things that he had to do to survive. Or like he watched his mother do that, right? You know, so Mm -hmm. there's a kind of like dividedness that exists in him. I think you can see it even here. And then like slowly breaks down over season one. The redemption arc that he gets kind of comes from him being able to finally like have a moment where he breaks down and learns to listen to that conscience and act on it instead. I think that's why for me, like with you, I think day trip is really the turning point for me and in both in, in how I viewed his relationship with Clark, but also just finding him as a character really empathetic is because that's the first moment that you really see him like realizing that all the things that come off, like he's doing them sort of cavalierly have all had a cost and he's sort of reckoning with the cost of all those things at the same time. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Which is how you know that all along he has had a conscience about these decisions, like all along these choices 
have had weight to him, but he's sort of putting on this mask like they don't because he has to. Yeah. You know, and yeah. I think that that's something that he's learned from having to raise his sister. I think that he's had to do a lot of putting on a mask and looking confident and looking decisive and acting like he knows what he's doing all the time because, you know, he was a child parenting a child. He sort of had to develop that. And so watching that mask kind of become fragmented and you get this sort of the glimpse of the other side of him, I think then it recolors all of the other stuff that we've seen happen. Yeah, I think this is what they were going for with what they did in season three. Part of why it was so frustrating because it was like a return to season one that didn't really seem like necessary. Yeah. But I think like the thread of continuity that they were going for was this idea like Bellamy's always been somebody who has been able to sort of like separate out what he had to do or sort of like absorb the moral consequences of things for himself. Right. If he thought that the outcome of it was good enough, right? Right. That's the through line they were going for in season yeah. three. So it's really interesting. It does seem like they kind of had a fairly uninteresting antagonist sort of planned with Bellamy. Mm -hmm. And then they sort of like at least partly changed tack. I, I don't think that like he was going to be the villain from beginning to end. I think they probably had the idea that they were going to turn him around. But I think like maybe one of the reasons why it works so well is because you sort of can see the seeds of that even in the pilot. You know, like talking about characters who are sort of like fully themselves from the beginning. I think that Bellamy is sort of fully himself in the beginning, even though in a lot of ways the writing isn't fully Bellamy from the beginning. In the pilot, I think both Kane and Bellamy are a little underwritten, but the performances yeah, are fantastic. Exactly. And and I think that the performances give nuance where the writing smooths over nuance and, yeah. and simplifies things. But it's because of Henry Ian Cusick that that scene between Kane and Callie makes you feel like there's more to Kane than just like asshole second in command which is a pretty typical villain template. The second in command who wants to be first in command and is Machiavellian and ruthless and will do whatever. And with Bellamy, you have the renegade asshole who doesn't care about rules. And sure, he has this one relationship that is potentially like redemptive, but that basically what we see is that he's there to be the antagonist. And I think that where there are places where the writing and the writers have even said like that they feel like it really took them until about episode four to feel like they really knew what the show was going to be. So I don't feel bad sort of saying that. That's just how TV shows are, you know, like. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Oh, totally. Yeah. But I think that the performances are there from minute one. And yeah. I think that it is particularly in the cases of characters like Kane and Bellamy. And I would also argue really with Murphy. Yeah, that the realization that those actors are capable of more than generic asshole has led to, I think, I mean, like if you think about the depth and richness of what those three characters do in season three, even notwithstanding the oft discussed by us narrative challenges with Bellamy's story <laughs> in season three. Right. Even removing that from the table, I think the depth of the material that they're given and the really interesting totality of their season one to season three arcs, I think it's because you can tell immediately, even from not a lot of material in the very first episode, that those three actors have so much more going on beneath the surface than just like, my job is to stomp around and yell and get in the Griffin lady's way. Right, exactly. And that's like what I was saying before, but like there's not a single wrong note in this cast. And I don't think there ever has been, even down to guest stars. 
And so I think that the smartest, best decision that they made were the decisions they made at the beginning when they selected this cast. And then the second best decision was realizing what they had in those actors. And really particularly, I think, in Bob and Eliza. Yeah, yeah. More than anything else, because they're the heart of the show, you know, but realizing the incredible expressiveness of their faces and the nuance and sort of multidimensional. Because Clark too, like Clark in the hands of a different actress could be a total, like could be an unbearable goody two shoes. Oh yeah, definitely. Yeah. Because Clark spends so much of it being outwardly the sort of like by the book girl. You keep calling her princess. She could come across as sort of prissy or like buzzkill. But Eliza has like from the beginning, she has that intensity. It doesn't come across as prissy. It just comes across as having zero chill. You know, like the thing right, about Clark right. Griffin is not really that she's a goody two shoes. It's just she's that she's like, we have a problem and the problem is no food and we're going to solve it right fucking now. And like, like you said, like with another actress that could come across poorly or unappealing or it could just kind of not work. Mm-hmm. But I think like it comes from a place that seems so genuine that Clark really is just like single minded. Yeah. Finn has to spend like half an episode throwing jokes at her before he finally gets her to crack a smile, you know? And then it's this kind of moment of like, of she just needs to relax. I think like that's the sort of dynamic they're going for with that ship is that at least the beginning is Finn's the one who can help her relax. But like Eliza has that like sort of intensity that comes across as driven from some sort of really deep place in Clark. Right, right. And I think that what's really important about a character like that and and I th- also think too with with Bellamy, which is why it's so satisfying when you watch them sort of moving towards each other and then becoming sort of a unified pairing as the show goes on, is that it never feels forced for narrative purposes that they both fall into these leadership roles. Yeah. Like it feels so, for both of them, the way that it happens, the way that they sort of build their coalitions, the way that people sort of alliance, like Octavia in particular, alliance sort of shifts between like whose team she's on. Yeah. And the way that they make their case and build power and establish credibility feels so rooted in who they are and so believable that it makes immediate perfect sense that Clark would not wait to be given a leadership position, but it's just going to be like, I'm going to take this map. I'm going to go do the thing. And the handful of people that are sort of pragmatic enough to realize like, oh, yeah, we need to figure out this food thing. They're all sort of immediately with her, but like it all feels so rooted in who she is. And that Bellamy at the same side, I think like he's sort of playing to the cheap seats. He knows exactly what to say to get the group to respond, to create this public persona of leadership, but it's masking this vulnerability. Whereas from Clark, Clark really genuinely is serenely confident that she is the one who is right. I think that's the thing with like a different actress, Clark sort of taking charge like that could come across to the viewer as her being like the princess. Like, I'm in charge because I'm in charge, you know, that kind of thing. But because of the sort of level of intensity that Eliza Taylor has that really digs into that character of Clark, I think it works because it's so apparent from the beginning that Clark's charisma comes from that certainty. Because she's the sort of person who is like, this is what we need to do to solve this problem so that we all stay alive. And there's like, there is a power. Like if you think about like in any situation like that, like let's say there's like 100 people, especially kids, like teenagers, thrown on the ground in a situation where no one's in charge and no one really knows what to do. People always kind of flock to and naturally listen to a person who says, I have a plan and the plan is going to work. 
Yeah. And so like Clark is that person whose charisma lies in her sort of ability to quickly and clearly and with confidence make decisions. Yeah. And like we said, like her problem is the reason that she and Bellamy wind up being foils for each other and they're good partners is that she's got like the Leslie note problem. You know, she's like, she's not that good at identifying the best way to appeal to her audience. Whether you agree with her or not or like her or not, she's got that kind of like she's a leader because she's leading because she's like, I have an idea. We should do it. And then on Bellamy's side, I think, you know, like they do a good job of sort of establishing. And like, I will say like, so Bob Morley gets a ton of credit, but I actually also think that the directing and the editing do a great job for him because he gets Bellamy gets a lot of they're very patient with his beats. We get like plenty of time and sort of like cuts back to his face and sort of space for the viewer to realize why he's making the decisions he's making. You know, so they hit the ground and there's a kind of moment like we get the sort of like protagonist antagonist introduction when, you know, he's at the door and she comes down and they have that kind of exchange about what they're going to do. Which, you know, like in terms of how film works is telling us these are two characters who are important and they're going to be at odds. But also just sort of like these are also two people on the ground who both think they know how we ought to do things and are sort of like establishing themselves in this group as the people who know how we ought to do things. And that we know that because there's a hundred people, the question of who can draw more people to their side is going to become incredibly important because it's a big enough group that people are going to be fundamentally fractured along some interesting lines. We get that sort of established that Bellamy's there for Octavia and we get that moment when he first sort of tells her his hints like I can't tell you what I did but I can't stay here you know and then they're very patient with sort of like the slow reveal of he's standing there and he hears what the wristbands are for yeah we're watching him watching that moment you know so they very clearly are setting up like his first instinct is to leave then he hears that there's a way to fix it so that the people on the arc don't come down and he can stay And so, like, Clark becomes a leader because she just instinctively sort of automatically is like, this is what we need to do to survive as a group. Bellamy is much more like, you know, he doesn't set out to become a leader until he's sort of like, what I need to do is to get this group of people on my side to do what I want them to do. Right. In order to sort of get the situation to be where I want it to be. But like, again, he has this sort of leadership quality where he's sort of able and willing to stand up and persuade people that he knows the correct way to go. But his motivation to do that is very different from Clark's until later, until he sort of like against his own intentions winds up emotionally adopting all these kids and is like, ah, now I got to keep them all alive. (laughs) (laughs) But yeah, but no, I think like they did a really good job. And this is a testament to the performances and I think also sort of like everything that went into the sort of the directing and the editing of sort of a very, very convincingly or organically establishing these two characters is like, it makes total sense that everybody would follow them. That no matter whose side you were on, you would both recognize that these were the big voices, you know, and that that the things are going to be divided until they decide to get together. So that was very, like, deftly done, I think. I think so, too. And it also sets up the way, even with the little amount of screen time, like you said, that they have together in this episode. And as much as I remember watching the first time where I instantly and comprehensively detested Bellamy. (laughs) But I was immediately invested in that antagonism. Like, I immediately knew, like, the conflict between these two people is going to be fundamentally dramatically interesting. Yeah, like you hated Bellamy, but like, but it wasn't like the Finn kind of hate where you're like, when is he going to die? It was like the good kind of hate. You're like, oh, this asshole, you know, like this is going to be good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so he was really compelling yeah, and, and yeah. that it felt like, like, okay, so this is clearly like these two people and their differing perspectives on how to build a society on the ground or how obligated they feel to the people around them 
or how they make decisions and who's going to listen to who and also sort of which of those sides Octavia is going to find herself on. Those are questions that were immediately like, oh, this is going to be really interesting to watch how this all plays out. Like, I didn't like him, but I was super invested in their relationship pretty much right off the bat, I think. Yeah, I was the same way. Like, I loathed Bellamy until I think I started coming around in episode five with the flashbacks. And I remember even in that episode being like so mad. I was like, oh, God, they're going to make me like him now. Yeah, they're trying to make me like Bellamy. Yeah, I was like, I love him. But like, yeah, it took me a while, but I was invested from the beginning. And like, one interesting thing I think about the pilot that's different from the relationship later on is that I think Clark backs down in all of their confrontations in the pilot. You know, like he opens the door oh, to practice uh-huh. him, and then when they have the confrontation about uh-huh. weather, she's kind of like, whatever, I, I'll just go, you know, which is interesting, right? Because like, we'll see how this goes next podcast. We watch episodes two and three, but I'm pretty sure as soon as she comes back in episode two, that's when their dynamic is really established in that she is the person who will not back down. Wells will back down, but Clark starting in episode two is the one like who will get in Bellamy's face and won't back down, mm-hmm. you know? And that's the thing that really makes them equals and really, really compelling is the kind of like going nose to nose, you know, that sort of like grudging right. respect between them. Well, and I think where that comes from, I think a lot of that is traced back to Jasper, to Jasper getting yeah. speared. And and actually, and Octavia and the sea monster too. I think yeah, that yeah, yeah. coming back to camp with two people who were injured so gravely and they still don't have food. Yeah. I think that, Clark sees that immediately the stakes are even higher than she thought they were. Yeah. And because she's driven by, like her mom said, like the, you know, to protect everybody, to sort of lead everyone, to keep the whole group together. I think that her comprehending long before Bellamy does the stakes of what happens if they're not unified and they're not all working together as a team and being like smart and proactive with the things that she has seen now. And that also really bonds that little unit together. Yeah, you're right. Yeah, like the first few episodes, they're really this core little unit who are held together. Like they're the only people who want to keep Jasper alive. Yeah. But I think like also this is kind of where the stakes of Bellamy setting himself up as leader kind of come out for him. You know, I don't think like when he started getting people to take off their wristbands in the pilot, he was really thinking about the fact that being the leader was going to mean that he was the one everybody turned to was like, where is our food? You know, so like that kind of forces forces him into a position where he has to start doing things to take care of the group that then sort of like shapes his relationship with them. Whereas Clark is like things get more complicated. It sort of learns that things that are as black or white, you know, Mm -hmm. so like this is the roots of kind of how they start to move towards each other. Which again, just like goes to show that the show has been built around Bellamy and Clark as a unit since like, that's the heart, you know, it's like Bellamy and Clark and Abby and Kane are like the units on which the show has run since the pilot. Yeah, yeah. Speaking of which, should we want to talk about Parallels? Let's close by talking about how our faves are all like each other. Our faves, yes. Yeah, but in a gender reversed yes. way. There's always lots of sort of like fandom chatter about Bullark and Cabby parallels, and they certainly do exist. I think it diminishes the relationship to sort of say like the template is the same, like that, yeah, you know, yeah, Cabby yeah. is what Bullark will like mature into, because I think that that minimizes both of them. But yeah. I, what I do think gets overlooked sometimes is I think the assumption inherent in a lot of those conversations that you sort of see floating around is that. The line is Clark and Abby are the same. And then Kane and Bellamy are like the antagonist foils to like the righteous Griffin women. And I think that's oversimplifying it because to me, I think the real connective thread 
is Kane and Clark make decisions the same way and Abby and Bellany make decisions the same way. Yeah. And yeah. and that we see them prone to the same kind of mistakes and we see them have the same kind of leadership strengths. Like I think Abby and Bellamy protecting the person that they love makes them both incredibly brave and heroic and also at times wildly irresponsible. Yes, exactly. And it's part of why I'm always wishing that this show would make that more textual. I think that particularly now, you know, in season three, where they're so clearly the two defining relationships in Clark's life, but they're so similar to each other. And there are little moments kind of all the way through along, like Abby giving Finn and Bellamy the guns in season two, we know is a terrible idea. Oh, yeah. But it's also exactly what Bellamy would do. Oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, I also think about sometimes, like, if you did an edit of the show that was just the stuff on the arc happening without the stuff on the ground, Abby would look completely different as a character. Oh, yeah. Like, there's a lot of stuff that she does that is just straight up, like, we know that she's right. But, like, because we see what's happening on the ground, we forget that so much of what she's doing is just on blind faith, which is, like, very sympathetic, but also, like, straight up stupid sometimes. There's a version of this story with these same characters where Abby's the villain, yeah, you know? Yeah, yeah. And I think that it sort of gets to the idea that, like, everything's all about perspective because we know that Bellamy is wrong or is being short-sighted about the reckless things that he's doing. And we know that Abby is right about the reckless things that she's doing. But Kane doesn't know that, you know, and Jaha and the rest of the council don't know that, that they don't actually have any evidence. Everyone is taking it on Abby's faith. Yeah. And that's troubling. You know, that's a problem. Whereas Kane and Clark, I think, are the people who are making decisions based on sort of a fundamental assumption that, at least in the beginning, that we see the move away from. When Clark first lands on the ground, and then at the beginning of season two, when we see the adults first land on the ground, both Kane and Clark kind of come at it from this point of view, like replicating as close as possible the way the arc did things or the social structures of the arc or the way that you believe that the world is supposed to run is the best idea. With Kane, you know, who's sort of like the Exodus Charter gave us a system that will keep us alive. That's right. kind of how he looks at it. It's not that he loves that system. He's not like like an acolyte or something like right, that. He's right. just sort of like at a pragmatic level. He's like, this is the thing that we do because it works. So we're going to do it by the book. Right, right. You know, so he has that kind of faith in it, but it's not like he loves it, you know? And I think Clark in the, in the pilot has the same kind of relationship with that. So like Clark hits the ground. She's like, look, we have a set of steps that you take to survive. Mm-hmm. Step one, you walk to Mount Weather, which is where they told us supplies to keep us alive are, and you get the supplies, and then you live. Right. You know, so it's not like she's particularly, like, that doesn't mean that she's like, yay, Ark. You know, it doesn't mean that she, like, right, right. loves the people who made those rules. But she's like, my goal is to keep this set of people alive and a kind of, like, abstract level, not because I particularly love any one of them, but because what one does is make sure that people don't die, or as many right. people as possible. And in order to achieve that goal, you do X, Y, and Z. That sort of aspect of Clark is the same or very similar to Kane up on the Ark. It's the same thing. I have this right. set of people right. that I got to keep alive, or as many of them as possible. And I have this thing that says, in order to do that, you do X, Y, and Z. So I'm going to do X, Y, and Z. Clark doesn't step into leadership because it's personal for her. You know, it's not personal, really. It's principle, right? Like, it's not that she's, like, unfeeling, obviously, but it's just not, like, Bellamy and Abby who are, like, there is one person that, like, drives me to do everything I'm doing. Right. Well, there's a duty component to it, I think, for Kane and Clark. 
there's sort of a obligation to the greater good. And I think that Abby also has that, but I think that when those two things are in opposition, she will always choose Clark. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, like, you know, she's, we talk about she's operating on faith. I think the reason that her faith is so unyielding is because of Clark, right? Like, if Clark weren't on the ground, she might be more amenable to those rational arguments. She would still think it was right. right. She'd still think it's her duty not to give up on the kids. But she would not be so driven to believe, contrary to available evidence, that they were going to be okay, you know, that they just had to stick with them if it were for Clark. I think that the very brief exchange we get in the flashback between Jake and Abby about what Jake should do with this information that he has, he tells her, you sound like Cain. You're making the same kind of overly logical, not trusting in the goodness of people decision that Cain is making. And that to me is a really illuminating comment because it makes me sort of wonder before we come into this story, like right before the pilot, was Abby as a leader different? Were she and Kane more yeah. on the same side before Jake got floated and Clark was arrested? Were they more sort of politically potentially in alignment? Is part of why she's so antagonistic to him because it is personal to her, you know, because she's a person who makes decisions based on things that are personal. And so it's not just she's pushing back on him because of Clark being on the ground and her wanting to believe that the kids are alive. It's because there's a part of her that because of what happened to Jake, sort of fundamentally, there's sort of a rift between them where she's like, you are wrong and I am right. Because it does feel like that little glimpse into what was her relationship with Kane like before Jake was floated She's advising against recklessness. You know, she's yeah. advising against the impulsive faith-based people will do the right thing kind of idealism that really defined the what little we see of yeah yes you do wonder if like part of that is her sort of trying to atone for having done the wrong thing with jake by embracing that sort of like faith that she had rejected yeah or is the fact that clark is the only thing that she has left mean that she feels like she has nothing to lose And that she's 300% throwing herself in with like, I am not fucking giving up on my kid because Clark is all that she has left to fight for. Right. Which actually kind of paints her side of the calling argument in a somewhat darker light, you know, because Mm -hmm. in that case, it's sort of like she has nothing left to lose. So she's like, not that it's consciously coming from that place, but she's sort of coming from a place of what do we have to lose? As much as from like, uh, I don't want to like kill 300 people if we maybe possibly don't have to. Yeah. I think all of the adults, the way they handle the culling brings out a new side of all of them. I think that the side of Jaha that shows himself to be sort of like martyrish and self-sacrificial is a new color on him. Like that's a new side of Jaha the leader. Yeah. And Kane trying to protest that, like Kane being handed power and refusing it is a new side of Kane that we don't see. And but then I also think that Abby being reckless to a degree that's dangerous, like it turns out that she's right. But she had no actual like reason to think that she was right. Then. Right, exactly. She was just like, I have one bullet left in this gun. I'm going to just do it and see what happens and hope to God that I'm right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that's a very Bellamy thing to do. Yeah, you're right. And it is not initially in how they're presented. It isn't a Clark thing to do. And I think that watching both Clark and Bellamy and Kane and Abby learn from and respond to and change each other in ways that are very balanced and mutual, like that they're both impacting. It's, It's not the women making the men better. 
which is kind of, I think, again, in the hands of different people, how this story could go. Is that yeah. you have like bad men who are reformed by the love of good women. And I hate that <laughs> as a template. Yeah, yeah. And in different hands, that could be the very unsatisfying end of that story. And the fact that it isn't is because Abby and Clark are also deeply flawed in ways that are presented to us very clearly. Yeah. And that we see everybody make mistakes and have to bear the consequences of those mistakes, but in ways that feel like you're not condemning them for those choices, but you're also saying like, Abby leaking Jake's message, it could have turned out that she was right the first time and everybody was right the first time. And it could have been like a mass stampede of panic. Like yeah, yeah, yeah. that absolutely could have happened. Yeah, absolutely. You know, and the fact that it turned out that Jake was right and it turned out that that faith in humanity and then people's best selves was justified is a good thing. But also it's complicated by the fact that because of other people's choices, like Kane and Bellamy, that it wasn't even necessary. Yeah. You know, so yeah. it's like watching these people make decisions that are sort of deeply rooted in these interesting, colorful, complicated character flaws that we're seeing the roots of that right off the bat, you yeah. know? Yeah. Ah, hooray. Ah, <laughs> uh, we're back. I'm so we're glad back. we're back. Me too. It's awesome. Okay, so we're going to be doing these every two weeks, recapping two episodes at a time. So we'll be back on July 28th with a recap of episodes two and three, which we're very excited about. We're going to be doing all of season one and all of season two, which should take us up through when the fourth season starts back up again in January. So we are going to be filling your hiatus with lots of meditation yelling. And it will be some kind of miracle if we can manage to do two episode podcasts in two hours, but we're going to make it happen. <laughs> it's going to be a, a big challenge for us. It's going to be a, a big challenge. Of course, we managed to talk about like the entire season in the pilot podcast. So I don't know. That's true. Maybe yeah. We've really... already covered a lot. Yeah. <laughs> So thanks so much for listening to our recap of the pilot. And now we have a very special announcement for you. We have a guest segment with some very special visitors to Metastation that we recorded on Tuesday. That's going to include a special announcement about a really cool thing that Metastation is participating in. So now we are going to introduce you to our special guests. Hello, and uh, welcome back for a very special segment of Metastation. Erin uh, and I are here with three very exciting guests. We have the organizers of the Unity Days Con here with us. That's going to be taking place next January in Vancouver, BC. We have a very special announcement that we'll get to later about how Erin and I are going to be involved in the con. But first, we're going to introduce you to our guests, and they're going to talk a little bit about what the con is going to be like, what's going to be happening, and how this all came out. So uh, welcome, Liana and Maya and Erica. Hey, Hi. thank you for having us. Yeah, you're welcome. We're thrilled you're here. So why don't we start with Maya? We'll go alphabetically. So Maya, do you want to introduce yourself and say a little bit about yourself? Sure. Um, I'm from Edmonton, Alberta, and I have a background in graphic design, production, and operation. And I started watching The 100 when season one started, I think, in 2014. And I wasn't interested at first because I thought it was just going to be another teen drama. But when I saw the pilot with Jasper being speared, I was really hooked. <laughs> 
<laughs> like, oh God, it's crazy. And totally fell in love with the character development and the show as a whole. Okay, thank you, Maya. And Liana? Sure. So I do the marketing, PR, communications, and creative for Unity events. I'm also from Edmonton, Alberta. Most of my background is in entertainment, doing marketing, communications, promotions. I started watching The 100 last summer, and my best friend and I just binge-watched season one and two on Netflix. And we were just hooked. So we watched season three live and been hooked ever since. (laughs) And Erica. I moved to Canada, Alberta, about two years ago. And while I was waiting for my permanent residence to come through, um, I was writing for an online entertainment news source and ended up doing a lot of interviews with the cast. So my part in Unity events is to work out contracts with the talent and to uh, try to find vendors, sponsors, and to kind of work with the media. So like you guys. Cool. Um, So why don't you tell us a little bit about the convention? Uh, Just kind of who, what, when, where basics. Sure. So uh, Unity Days takes place January 13, 14, 15, 2017 in Vancouver, BC, also known as the City of Light. (laughs) (laughs) So we're going to have panels, meet and greets, autographs, photo ops, and a bunch more surprises. Um, So right now, the guests that we have confirmed are Bob Morley, Lindsay Morgan, Richard Harmon, Chelsea Reist, Jessica Harmon, Jared Joseph, Louisa de Oliveira, Sachin Sahil, Toby Levins, and Ty Olson. Plus, we have more guests to be announced, so everybody has to stay tuned for that. And do you want to tell us a little bit about how you guys came together and how this con came about? Like, what, what sort of spurred you guys to decide to do this? And maybe how you met each other? Um, I'll, I'll answer that one. Um, um kind of crazy i think we were just jealous of the paris con that was happening at the time definitely jealous <laughs> <laughs> very jealous we all went to the calgary comic-con i think it was around late april it was the same weekend that the paris um con happened and we were looking for anybody 100 cast or even a hundred poster but we can't find anything and we were like man this sucks like, you know, because it would have been great if they were there. So the more we talked, the more we're like, you know what? Everything happens in Europe. Like, uh, but they, they haven't done a 100 con in Canada or even North America as far as I know. And uh, we started thinking about doing one. Actually, we started first in Alberta. Um, and then we thought, you know, it might be better to do one in Vancouver since, you know, they do their filming in Vancouver. And funny enough, like I think it was two days when we finally said we want to do this, we called one of the talent management and they were so excited because even the actual cast was thinking about doing the same thing. They wanted. Oh, really? Yeah, they wanted to do a 100 um, convention in Vancouver, but they just didn't know if anyone would be interested in you know, planning it. And so it was just kind of weird on how that it happened all at the same time. Everybody was thinking the same thing. So that's where it came from. And then. Um, me and Erica knew each other from Twitter, and then I met Liana since I live, we live in the same city. And then from then on, we just, it just matched, like everything just went perfectly, like all our skills, all our strengths, just, it, it just went upwards from there. We, we were working so well together, and it's, it's so awesome being working with Liana and Erica. 
So it sounds like it's all been very sort of uh, serendipitous how this has come together. Yeah, we, we all work really well together, which is amazing. I've been really blessed with having these two partners. Okay, so uh, Claire, shall we shift to our special announcement? Yes. Part of the reason that we wanted to have these three awesome people come on and kind of chat with us a little bit about the con is Aaron and I both announced on Tumblr and on Twitter um, like a week or so ago that we're both going to be at the con. Um, And the thing that we didn't tell you that we're super excited about is that we're going to be participating in a panel of the 100 podcasters. It's going to be me and Aaron Robin Jeffries and Brittany Ray from the Giantist TV Crush 100 podcast, Joe Garfine from the Dropship, who's also going to be moderating the cast panels, which is super exciting. And so we're going to be getting the chance to talk to some other really cool ladies who all run different podcasts for the 100 that all have sort of a very different kind of focus and perspective and and just kind of talk about like podcasting and fandom and fandom culture and being women in you know in podcasting and women fans of the show and yeah so we're gonna get a chance to meet fans in person we're super excited um we've never been to a hundred con before so this is our our first time the only fan conventions i've ever been to are were a uh, beatlemania back when i was in high school <laughs> in chicago so this is actually like kind of sort of a first for me because i imagine this one will be very different from the the Beatle convention. <laughs> I did a little bit. <laughs> I did go to Star Trek conventions in middle school, but it was like back when, before any of this was like mainstream or cool at all, where like that was the kind of thing that like you didn't really talk about because <laughs> it was like deeply shaming. Yeah. So I'm just, I'm, I'm glad that culture has moved forward to the point that like now we can be like, cons are awesome. So we're obviously like totally stoked about this. We're really, really excited this worked out. And, you know, we were thrilled when when you guys accepted Claire's proposal for this. But we did just want to ask. So for this this particular panel, you know, having a bunch of uh, fan podcasters come together and talk to each other about the show and about the fandom. How do you guys see that this panel sort of fitting into your vision for the convention? Like, why did you say yes to this? What what's what was appealing about it to you guys? Well, our entire vision for this whole convention um, has really, besides stemming from just the fact that we were jealous of the other cons in Europe and really wanted to meet the cast ourselves, it came from um, all of the contention that has come from the fandom and everything that happened last season and all of the disunity and us wanting to really be able to do something to try to unify the fandom before the next season starts. And with the way things have worked out, this convention is going to be right before season four should start. And the cast will still be filming and it's taking place where they film. So really what we wanted to do, both with your panel and the convention as a whole, is bring together people from all parts of the fandom, no matter who they ship, no matter who they have as a no TP or whatever, (laughs) and just get people realizing that we are all human beings, we all enjoy this show, And whether we agree on every little nitpicky piece of it or not, we can get together and enjoy, you know, having fun, talking meta and um, 
oh gosh, just gushing and fangirling or fanboying <laughs> over this show and the cast that we love. That sounds great. And I, I really hope that our panel can sort of embody that that goal. You know, we have a bunch of different folks with different perspectives on the show with different things that we tend to focus on when we watch, which I think is something that we all do, right? Like naturally, we all have our favorites, whatever it is, and we tend to focus on that. And and so I hope we can have a conversation talking about the the power and the importance of having a, a different perspectives. Yeah. That can bring different ideas. And because like, I think that's one important thing about, you know, like our podcast is called Metastation. And one thing I think that's important about Meta to remember is it's not a zero sum game. Our favorite characters, we're going to focus on them and talk about them. And someone else might have favorite characters, they might focus on them and talk about them. But that's a good thing overall, because together we sort of build up a base of knowledge and analysis and stuff. Um, You know, the more of that there is, the more of the better. So I'm hope I hope that our panel can can sort of bring that out, like show how much richness comes from different voices all existing in the same fandom. I think that, you know, all of us that have that have podcasts for the show, like we all talk to each other on Twitter all the time, like we all know each other. And and even though we have different perspectives, and some of us have different ships, there's so much respect for each other and each other's perspectives. And so I just like, I'm really excited about getting a chance to like, have a fandom conversation where people with all these different perspectives are just sort of talking about the things that we have in common and the things that we all love. And, you know, in a way that really highlights that we're all part of the same broader group, which is the fandom of the show. And then who you like and don't like is separate from the fact that the thing that unifies all of us is that we all think that this show is so great that we're all like obsessed with it in our own different ways. Right, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> And another really good thing is, um, you know, you guys said that you you all know each other over Twitter and whatnot, but it's such a great way to meet face to face. And, you know, mm-hmm. it's not actually yeah. just about meeting the talent. It's about meeting the fans as well. Oh, for sure. Totally. Yeah. And that's another huge reason why we're doing it is we're fans of the show ourselves and we just we really want to give back to the 100 community. So, yeah, no, I, I mean, like one of the things is I'm like, I'm excited to meet the cast, but I'm really almost, well, probably just as excited to meet a lot of people that, you know, that I've met through the fandom that I've become friends with face to face. Like that part is so important and so wonderful. And, and I'm like super excited for it. So anybody who's all of our meditation listeners, make sure you come yes. and find us. Come to Vancouver. We yeah. We're you. super excited. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Nobody be shy. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> Okay, so uh, anything else you guys want to plug or mention or uh, get out there before we wrap this up? Oh, gosh, I guess the last thing I'd like to add is just that right now, as it is, we already have the basically the biggest hundred convention that has been put on so far. And like Leanna mentioned before, we're not done yet. Awesome. Excellent. Stay tuned for all the announcements. Yes. Stay tuned, everyone. We will be retweeting and reblogging all the announcements. Um, but you should also follow uh, these guys on Twitter. Um, and and what's your it's uh, what's your Twitter handle for it's the event again? At Unity Events CA. At Unity Events CA. So if you follow them, you will not miss a single announcement. Um, so thank you guys so much for coming on. We are so excited to meet you all face to face in Vancouver in January. Um, and to get to squeal and talk and have fun <laughs> with other people who love this show so much that they waste more enormous amounts of time on it, just like we do. <laughs> Thank you so much for having us. 
Yeah. Thank you. And thank you all for your hard work. It's it's a ton of hard work to put these things together and it's going to be so fun and we really appreciate yeah. it. We're so, we're so grateful in advance for all of the hard work that you guys are going to do because we know this is just going to be totally awesome. Yes. So we're thrilled to be part of it. Yeah. Awesome. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, guys. See you in January. May we meet again. All right. Thanks again to our special guests um, and to everyone for tuning in once again to the Metastation. So we will be back in two weeks with our podcast on episodes two and three of season one. For our hiatus, our plan is to post an episode every other Thursday, so every two weeks on Thursday, covering two episodes at a time up through the end of season two. So talking at you guys again in a couple of weeks. Bye. Thanks, everybody. Bye.